Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Chapter 14 of The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux. Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14 The Singular Attitude of a Safety Pin. Behind the curtain there was an indescribable crowd. Artists, scene shifters, dancers, supers, choristers, subscribers were all asking questions, shouting and hustling one another. What became of her? She's run away. With the Vicomte de Chagny, of course. No, with the Count. Ah, here's Carlotta. Carlotta did the trick. No, it was the ghost. And a few laughed, especially as a careful examination of the trap doors and boards had put the idea of an accident out of the question. Amid this noisy throng three men stood talking in a low voice and with despairing gestures. They were Gabriel, the chorus-master, Mercier, the acting-manager, and Remy, the secretary. They retired to a corner of the lobby by which the stage communicates with the wide passage leading to the foyer of the ballet. Here they stood and argued behind some enormous properties. "'I knocked at the door,' said Remy. "'They did not answer. Perhaps they are not in the office.' In any case, it's impossible to find out, for they took the keys with them. They were obviously the managers who had given orders during the last entr'acte that they were not to be disturbed on any pretext whatever. They were not in to anybody. All the same, exclaimed Gabriel, a singer isn't run away with from the middle of the stage every day. Did you shout that to them? asked Mercier impatiently. "'I'll go back again,' said Remy, and disappeared at a run. Thereupon the stage manager arrived. "'Well, Monsieur Mercier, are you coming? What are you two doing here? You're wanted, Mr. Acting Manager.' "'I refuse to know or to do anything before the commissary arrives,' declared Mercier. "'I have sent for Mifroy. We shall see when he comes.' "'And I tell you that you ought to go down to the organ at once.' "'Not before the commissary comes.' I've been down to the organ myself already. Ah, and what did you see? Well, I saw nobody. Do you hear? Nobody. What do you want me to do down there? You're right, said the stage manager, frantically pushing his hands through his rebellious hair. You're right, but there might be someone at the organ who could tell us how the stage came to be suddenly darkened. Now Mauclair is nowhere to be found. Do you understand that? Mauclair was the gas-man who dispensed day and night at will on the stage of the opera. "'Mauclair is not to be found?' repeated Mercier, taken aback. "'Well, what about his assistance?' "'There's no Mauclair and no assistance. No one at the lights, I tell you. You can imagine,' roared the stage-manager, "'that that little girl must have been carried off by somebody else. She didn't run away by herself. It was a calculated stroke, and we have to find out about it.' and what are the managers doing all this time? I gave orders that no one was to go down to the lights, and I posted a fireman in front of the gas-man's box beside the organ. Wasn't that right? Yes, yes, quite right, quite right, and now let's wait for the commissary. 
The stage manager walked away, shrugging his shoulders, fuming, muttering insults at those milksops who remained quietly squatting in a corner while the whole theater was topsy-turvy. Gabriel and Mercier were not quite so quiet as all that. Only they had received an order that paralyzed them. The managers were not to be disturbed on any account. Remy had violated that order and met with no success. At that moment he returned from his new expedition, wearing a curiously startled air. "'Well, have you seen them?' asked Mercier. "'Montcharmin opened the door at last. His eyes were starting out of his head. I thought he meant to strike me. I could not get a word in. And what do you think he shouted at me? Have you a safety pin? No? Well, then, clear out.' I tried to tell him that an unheard-of thing had happened on the stage, but he roared, A safety pin! Give me a safety pin at once! A boy heard him. He was bellowing like a bull, ran up with a safety pin and gave it to him, whereupon Monshormin slammed the door in my face, and there you are. And couldn't you have said, Christine Day? I should like to have seen you in my place. He was foaming at the mouth. He thought of nothing but his safety pin. I believe if they hadn't brought him one on the spot he would have fallen down in a fit. Oh, all this isn't natural, and our managers are going mad. Besides, it can't go on like this. I'm not used to being treated in that fashion. Suddenly Gabriel whispered, It's another trick of O.G.'s. Remy gave a grin, Mercier a sigh, and seemed about to speak, but meeting Gabriel's eye said nothing. However, Mercier felt his responsibility increased as the minutes passed without the manager's appearing, and at last he could stand it no longer. Look here, I'll go and hunt them out myself. Gabriel, turning very gloomy and serious, stopped him. Be careful what you're doing, Mercier. If they're staying in their office, it's probably because they have to. O.G. has more than one trick in his bag. But Mercier shook his head. That's their lookout. I'm going. If people had listened to me, the police would have known everything long ago. And he went. What's everything? asked Remy. What was there to tell the police? Why don't you answer, Gabriel? Ah, so you know something. Well, you would do better to tell me, too, if you don't want me to shout out that you are all going mad. Yes, that's what you are, mad. Gabriel put on a stupid look and pretended not to understand the private secretary's unseemly outburst. "'What something am I supposed to know?' he said. "'I don't know what you mean.' Remy began to lose his temper. "'This evening Richard and Monshormin were behaving like lunatics here, between the acts.' "'I never noticed it,' growled Gabriel, very much annoyed. "'Then you're the only one. Do you think that I didn't see them?' and that Monsieur Paribis, the manager of the Credit Central, noticed nothing, and that Monsieur de la Bordier, the ambassador, has no eyes to see with? Why, all the subscribers were pointing at our managers. But what were our managers doing? asked Gabriel, putting on his most innocent air. What were they doing? You know better than anyone what they were doing. You were there, and you were watching them, you and Mercier, and you were the only two who didn't laugh. I don't understand. Gabriel raised his arms and dropped them to his sides again, which gesture was meant to convey that the question did not interest him in the least. Remy continued, What is the sense of this new mania of theirs? Why won't they have anyone come near them now? What? Won't they have anyone come near them? And they won't let anyone touch them. Really, 
Have you noticed that they won't let anyone touch them? That is certainly odd. Oh, so you admit it, and high time, too. And then they walk backward. Backward? You have seen our managers walk backward? Why, I thought that only crabs walked backward. Don't laugh, Gabriel, don't laugh. I'm not laughing, protested Gabriel, looking as solemn as a judge. Perhaps you can tell me this, Gabriel, as you're an intimate friend of the management. When I went up to Monsieur Richard outside the foyer, during the garden interval, with my hand out before me, why did Monsieur Moncharmin hurriedly whisper to me, Go away, go away, whatever you do, don't touch Monsieur le directeur. Am I supposed to have an infectious disease? It's incredible. And a little later, when Monsieur de la Bordier went up to Monsieur Richard, didn't you see Monsieur Moncharmin fling himself between them and hear him exclaim, Monsieur l'ambassadeur, I entreat you not to touch Monsieur le directeur? It's terrible. And what was Richard doing meanwhile? What was he doing? Why, you saw him. He turned about, bowed in front of him, though there was nobody in front of him, and withdrew backward. Backward? and Monsherman behind Richard also turned about, that is, he described a semicircle behind Richard, and also walked backward, and they went like that to the staircase leading to the manager's office, backward, backward, backward. Well, if they are not mad, will you explain what it means? Perhaps they were practicing a figure in the ballet, suggested Gabriel, without much conviction in his voice. The secretary was furious at this wretched joke made at so dramatic a moment he knit his brows and contracted his lips then he put his mouth to gabriel's ear don't be so sly gabriel there are things going on for which you and mercier are partly responsible what do you mean asked gabriel christine day is not the only one who suddenly disappeared to-night oh nonsense there's no nonsense about it Perhaps you can tell me why, when Mother Jerry came down to the foyer just now, Mercier took her by the hand and hurried her away with him. Really, said Gabriel, I never saw it. You did see it, Gabriel, for you went with Mercier and Mother Jerry to Mercier's office. Since then you and Mercier have been seen, but no one has seen Mother Jerry. Do you think we've eaten her? No, but you've locked her up in the office and anyone passing the office can hear her yelling, Oh, the scoundrels! Oh, the scoundrels! At this point of this singular conversation, Mercier arrived, all out of breath. There, he said in a gloomy voice, it's worse than ever. I shouted, It's a serious matter! Open the door! It's I, Mercier! I heard footsteps. The door opened, and Monshorman appeared. He was very pale. He said, What do you want? I answered, someone has run away with Christine Day. What do you think he said? And a good job, too. And he shut the door after putting this in my hand. Mercier opened his hand. Remy and Gabriel looked. The safety pin, cried Remy. Strange, strange, muttered Gabriel, who could not help shivering. Suddenly a voice made them all three turn round. I beg your pardon, gentlemen. Could you tell me where Christine Day is? In spite of the seriousness of the circumstances, the absurdity of the question would have made them roar with laughter if they had not caught sight of a face so sorrow-stricken that they were at once seized with pity. It was the Vicomte Raoul de Chagny. 
End of chapter 14「Alexander Tezera de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15. Christine, Christine. Raoul's first thought after Christine Day's fantastic disappearance was to accuse Eric. He no longer doubted the almost supernatural powers of the angel of music in this domain of the opera in which he had set up his empire, and Raoul rushed on the stage in a mad fit of love and despair. "'Christine! Christine!' he moaned, calling to her as he felt that she must be calling to him from the depths of that dark pit to which the monster had carried her. "'Christine! Christine!' and he seemed to hear the girl's screams through the frail boards that separated him from her. He bent forward. He listened. He wandered over the stage like a madman. Ah, to descend, to descend into that pit of darkness, every entrance to which was closed to him, for the stairs that led below the stage were forbidden to one and all that night. Christine, Christine! People pushed him aside, laughing. They made fun of him. They thought the poor lover's brain was gone. But what mad road, through what passages of mystery and darkness known to him alone, had Eric dragged that pure-souled child to the awful haunt with the Louis-Philippe room opening out on the lake? Christine! Christine! Why don't you answer? Are you alive? Hideous thoughts flashed through Raoul's congested brain. Of course Eric must have discovered their secret, must have known that Christine had played him false. What a vengeance would be his! And Raoul thought again of the yellow stars that had come the night before and roamed over his balcony. Why had he not put them out for good? There were some men's eyes that dilated in the darkness and shone like stars or like cat's eyes. Certainly albinos, who seemed to have rabbit's eyes by day, had cat's eyes at night, Everybody knew that. Yes, yes, he had undoubtedly fired at Eric. Why had he not killed him? The monster had fled up the gutter spout like a cat or a convict, who everybody knew that also would scale the very skies with the help of a gutter spout. No doubt Eric was at that time contemplating some decisive step against Raoul, but he had been wounded and had escaped to turn against poor Christine instead. Such were the cruel thoughts that haunted Raoul as he ran to the singer's dressing-room. "'Christine! Christine!' Bitter tears scorched the boy's eyelids as he saw scattered over the furniture the clothes which his beautiful bride was to have worn at the hour of their flight. Oh, why had she refused to leave earlier? Why had she toyed with the threatening catastrophe? Why toyed with the monster's heart? Why, in a final access of pity, had she insisted on flinging as a last sop to that demon's soul her divine song? Holy angel, in heaven blessed, my spirit longs with thee to rest. Raoul, his throat filled with sobs, oaths, and insults, fumbled awkwardly at the great mirror that had opened one night before his eyes to let Christine pass to the murky dwelling below. He pushed, pressed, groped about, but the glass apparently obeyed no one but Eric. Perhaps actions were not enough with a glass of the kind. Perhaps he was expected to utter certain words. When he was a little boy he had heard that there were things that obeyed the spoken word. Suddenly Raoul remembered something about a gate opening into the Rue Scribe, an underground passage running straight to the Rue Scribe from the lake. 
Yes, Christine had told him about that, and when he found that the key was no longer in the box, he nevertheless ran to the Rue Scribe. Outside in the street he passed his trembling hands over the huge stones, felt for outlets, met with iron bars. Were those they, or these, or could it be that air-hole? He plunged his useless eyes through the bars. How dark it was in there! He listened. All was silence. He went round the building, and came to bigger bars, immense gates. It was the entrance to the Corps de l'Administration. Raoul pushed into the doorkeeper's lodge. "'I beg your pardon, madam. Could you tell me where to find a gate or door made of bars, iron bars, opening into the Rue Scribe, and leading to the lake? You know the lake I mean. Yes, the underground lake, under the opera.' "'Yes, sir, I know there is a lake under the opera, but I don't know which door leads to it. I have never been there.' "'And the Rue Scribe, madam, the Rue Scribe. Have you never been to the Rue Scribe?' The woman laughed, screamed with laughter. Raoul darted away, roaring with anger, ran upstairs, four stairs at a time, downstairs, rushed through the whole of the business side of the opera house, found himself once more in the light of the stage. He stopped, with his heart thumping in his chest. Suppose Christine Day had been found. He saw a group of men and asked, I beg your pardon, gentlemen, could you tell me where Christine Day is? And somebody laughed. At the same moment the stage buzzed with a new sound, and amid a crowd of men in the evening dress, all talking and gesticulating together, appeared a man who seemed very calm and displayed a pleasant face, all pink and chubby-cheeked, crowned with curly hair, and lit up by a pair of wonderfully serene blue eyes. Mercier, the acting manager, called the Vicomte de Chagny's attention to him and said, "'This is the gentleman to whom you should put your question, monsieur. Let me introduce Mifroy the commissary of police. "'Oh, monsieur, le comte de Chagny, delighted to meet you, monsieur,' said the commissary. "'Would you mind coming with me? And now where are the managers? Where are the managers?' Mercier did not answer, and Remy, the secretary, volunteered the information that the managers were locked up in their office, and that they knew nothing as yet of what had happened. "'You don't mean to say so. Let us go up to the office.' and Monsieur Meffroy, followed by an ever-increasing crowd, turned toward the business side of the building. Mercier took advantage of the confusion to slip a key into Gabriel's hand. "'This is all going very badly,' he whispered. "'You had better let Mother Giry out,' and Gabriel moved away. They soon came to the manager's door. Mercier stormed in vain. The door remained closed. "'Open in the name of the law!' commanded Monsieur Mifroy, in a loud and rather anxious voice. At last the door was opened. All rushed into the office on the commissary's heels. Raoul was the last to enter. As he was about to follow the rest into the room, a hand was laid on his shoulder, and he heard these words spoken in his ear. Eric's secrets concern no one but himself. He turned round with a stifled exclamation. The hand that was laid on his shoulder was now placed on the lips of a person with an ebony skin, with eyes of jade, and with an astrakhan cap on his head. The Persian. The stranger kept up the gesture that recommended discretion, and then, at the moment when the astonished Viscount was about to ask the reason of his mysterious intervention, bowed and disappeared. End of chapter 15
Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 Madame Jury's Astounding Revelations as to Her Personal Relations with the Opera Ghost. Before following the commissary into the manager's office, I must describe certain extraordinary occurrences that took place in that office which Remy and Mercier had vainly tried to enter, and into which Messieurs Richard and Moncharmin had locked themselves with an object which the reader does not yet know, but which it is my duty as an historian to reveal without further postponement. I have had occasion to say that the manager's mood had undergone a disagreeable change for some time past, and to convey the fact that this change was due not only to the fall of the chandelier on the famous night of the gala performance. The reader must know that the ghost had calmly been paid his first twenty thousand francs. Oh, there had been wailing and gnashing of teeth, indeed, and yet the thing had happened as simply as could be. One morning the managers found on their table an envelope addressed to Monsieur O.G., private, and accompanied by a note from O.G. himself. The time has come to carry out the clause in the memorandum book. Please put twenty notes of a thousand francs each into this envelope. Seal it with your own seal and hand it to Madame Giry, who will do what is necessary. The managers did not hesitate without wasting time in asking how these confounded communications came to be delivered in an office which they were careful to keep locked they seized this opportunity of laying hands on the mysterious blackmailer and after telling the whole story under the promise of secrecy to gabriel and mercier they put the twenty thousand francs into the envelope and without asking for explanations handed it to madame Jury, who had been reinstated in her functions the box-keeper displayed no astonishment I need hardly say that she was well watched. She went straight to the ghost's box and placed the precious envelope on the little shelf attached to the ledge. The two managers, as well as Gabriel and Mercier, were hidden in such a way that they did not lose sight of the envelope for a second during the performance and even afterward, for, as the envelope had not moved, those who watched it did not move either and Madame Jury went away while the managers and Gabriel and Mercier were still there. At last they became tired of waiting and opened the envelope, after ascertaining that the seals had not been broken. At first sight Richard and Moncharmin thought that the notes were still there, but soon they perceived that they were not the same. The twenty real notes were gone and had been replaced by twenty notes of the Bank of St. Fars. The manager's rage and fright were unmistakable. Moncharmin wanted to send for the commissary of police, but Richard objected. He no doubt had a plan, for he said, Don't let us make ourselves ridiculous. All Paris would laugh at us. O.G. has won the first game. We will win the second. He was thinking of the next month's allowance. Nevertheless, they had been so absolutely tricked that they were bound to suffer a certain dejection and upon my word it was not difficult to understand. We must not forget that the managers had an idea at the back of their minds all the time that this strange incident might be an unpleasant practical joke on the part of their predecessors, and that it would not do to divulge it prematurely. On the other hand, Moncharmin was sometimes troubled with a suspicion of Richard himself, who occasionally took fanciful whims into his head, and so they were content to await events while keeping an eye on Mother Jury. Richard would not have her spoken to, 
If she is a confederate, he said, the notes are gone long ago, but in my opinion she is merely an idiot. She's not the only idiot in this business, said Moncharmin pensively. Well, who could have thought it, moaned Richard, but don't be afraid. Next time I shall have taken my precautions. The next time fell on the same day that beheld the disappearance of Christine Day. In the morning a note from the ghost reminded them that the money was due. It read, Do just as you did last time. It went very well. Put the twenty thousand in the envelope and hand it to our excellent Madame Giry, and the note was accompanied by the usual envelope. They had only to insert the notes. This was done about half an hour before the curtain rose on the first act of Faust. Richard showed the envelope to Moncharmin. Then he counted the twenty thousand franc notes in front of him and put the notes into the envelope, but without closing it. And now, he said, let's have Mother Giry in. The old woman was sent for. She entered with a sweeping courtesy. She still wore her black taffeta dress, the color of which was rapidly turning to rust and lilac, to say nothing of the dingy bonnet. She seemed in a good temper. She at once said, "'Good evening, gentlemen. It's for the envelope, I suppose.' "'Yes, Madame Giry,' said Richard, most amiably, "'for the envelope and something else besides.' "'At your service, Monsieur Richard, at your service. And what is the something else, please? First of all, Madame Giry, I have a little question to put to you.' "'By all means, Monsieur Richard. Madame Giry is here to answer you.' "'Are you still on good terms with the ghost?' "'Couldn't be better, sir, couldn't be better.' "'Ah, we are delighted. Look here, Madame Giry,' said Richard, in the tone of making an important confidence, "'we may just as well tell you, among ourselves, you're no fool.' "'Why, sir!' exclaimed the box-keeper, stopping the pleasant nodding of the black feathers in her dingy bonnet. "'I assure you no one has ever doubted that. We are quite agreed, and we shall soon understand one another. The story of the ghost is all humbug, isn't it? Well, still between ourselves.' It has lasted long enough. Madame Giry looked at the managers as though they were talking Chinese. She walked up to Richard's table and asked rather anxiously, What do you mean? I don't understand. Oh, you understand quite well. In any case, you've got to understand. And first of all, tell us his name. Whose name? The name of the man whose accomplice you are, Madame Giry. I am the ghost's accomplice. I... His accomplice in what, pray? You do all he wants. Oh, he's not very troublesome, you know. And does he still tip you? I mustn't complain. How much does he give you for bringing him that envelope? Ten francs. You poor thing, that's not much, is it? Why? I'll tell you that presently, Madame Giry. Just now we should like to know for what extraordinary reason you have given yourself body and soul to this ghost. Madame Giry's friendship and devotion are not to be bought for five francs or ten francs. That's true enough, and I can tell you the reason, sir. There's no disgrace about it. On the contrary. We're quite sure of that, Madame Giry. Well, it's like this. Only the ghost doesn't like me to talk about his business. Indeed sneered Richard. But this is a matter that concerns myself alone. Well, it was in box five one evening. I found a letter addressed to myself, a sort of note written in red ink. 
I needn't read the letter to you, sir. I know it by heart, and I shall never forget it if I live to be a hundred. And Madame Jury, drawing herself up, recited the letter with touching eloquence. Madame, 1825. Mademoiselle Mentrier, leader of the ballet, became Marquis de Cossy. 1832. Mademoiselle Marie Taglioni, a dancer, became Comtesse Gilbert de Voissens. 1846. La Sota, a dancer, married a brother of the King of Spain. 1847. Lola Montes, a dancer, became the morganatic wife of King Louis of Bavaria, and was created Countess of Lansfeld. 1848. Mademoiselle Maria, a dancer, became Barona de Herneville. 1870. Teresa Hessier, a dancer, married Dom Fernando, brother to the King of Portugal. Richard and Moncharmin listened to the old woman, who, as she proceeded with the enumeration of these glorious nuptials, swelled out, took courage, and at last, in a voice bursting with pride, flung out the last sentence of the prophetic letter. 1885. Megjerie Empress. Exhausted by this supreme effort, the box-keeper fell into a chair, saying, Gentlemen, the letter was signed Opera Ghost. I had heard much of the ghost, but only half believed in him, from the day when he declared that my little Meg, the flesh of my flesh, the fruit of my womb, would be empress, I believed in him altogether. And really it was not necessary to make a long study of Madame Jury's excited features to understand what could be got out of that fine intellect with the two words ghost and empress. But who pulled the strings of that extraordinary puppet? That was the question. You have never seen him. He speaks to you, and you believe all he says? asked Moncharmin. Yes, to begin with, I owe it to him that my little Meg was promoted to be the leader of a row. I said to the ghost, If she is to be empress in 1885, there is no time to lose. She must become a leader at once. He said, Look upon it as done and he had only a word to say to Monsieur Poligny, and the thing was done. So you say that Monsieur Poligny saw him? No, not any more than I did, but he heard him. The ghost said a word in his ear, you know, on the evening when he left Box 5, looking so dreadfully pale. Moncharmin heaved a sigh. What a business, he groaned. Ah, said Madame Jury. I always thought there were secrets between the ghost and Monsieur Poligny. Anything that the ghost asked Monsieur Poligny to do, Monsieur Poligny did. Monsieur Poligny could refuse the ghost nothing. You hear, Richard, Poligny could refuse the ghost nothing. Yes, yes, I hear, said Richard. Monsieur Poligny is a friend of the ghost, and as Madame Jury is a friend of Monsieur Poligny, there we are. But I don't care a hang about Monsieur Poligny, he added roughly. The only person whose fate really interests me is Madame Jury. Madame Jury, do you know what is in this envelope? Why, of course not, she said. Well, look. Madame Jury looked into the envelope with a lackluster eye, which soon recovered its brilliancy. Thousand franc notes, she cried. Yes, Madame Jury, thousand franc notes and you knew it. I, sir? I? I swear. Don't swear, Madame Jury. 
and now I will tell you the second reason why I sent for you. Madame Jerry, I am going to have you arrested. The two black feathers on the dingy bonnet, which usually affected the attitude of two notes of interrogation, changed into two notes of exclamation. As for the bonnet itself, it swayed in menace on the old lady's tempestuous chignon. Surprise, indignation, protest, and dismay were furthermore displayed by little Meg's mother in a sort of extravagant movement of offended virtue, half-bound, half-slide, that brought her right under the nose of Monsieur Richard, who could not help pushing back his chair. "'Have me arrested?' The mouth that spoke those words seemed to spit the three teeth that were left to it into Richard's face. Monsieur Richard behaved like a hero. He retreated no farther. His threatening forefinger seemed already to be pointing out the keeper of Box Five to the absent magistrates. "'I'm going to have you arrested, Madame Jury, as a thief.' "'Say that again?' and Madame Jury caught Monsieur Manager Richard a mighty box on the ear before Monsieur Manager Moncharmin had time to intervene. But it was not the withered hand of the angry old beldame that fell on the managerial ear, but the envelope itself, the cause of all the trouble, the magic envelope that opened with the blow, scattering the banknotes, which escaped in a fantastic whirl of giant butterflies. The two managers gave a shout, and the same thought made them both go on their knees, feverishly picking up and hurriedly examining the precious scraps of paper. "'Are they still genuine, Mon Charmin? Are they still genuine, Richard?' "'Yes, they are still genuine.' Above their heads Madame Jury's three teeth were clashing in a noisy contest, full of hideous interjections, but all that could be clearly distinguished was this late motif. "'I, a thief!' i a thief i she choked with rage she shouted i never heard of such a thing and suddenly she darted up to richard again in any case she yelped you monsieur richard ought to know better than i where the twenty thousand francs went to i asked richard astounded and how should i know Moncharmin, looking severe and dissatisfied at once insisted that the good lady should explain herself what does this mean, Madame Jury? he asked, and why do you say that Monsieur Richard ought to know better than you where the twenty thousand francs went to? As for Richard, who felt himself turning red under Moncharmin's eyes, he took Madame Jury by the wrist and shook it violently. In a voice growling and rolling like thunder, he roared, Why should I know better than you where the twenty thousand francs went to? Why? Answer me! "'Because they went into your pocket,' gasped the old woman, looking at him as if he were the devil incarnate. Richard would have rushed upon Madame Jury if Monshorman had not stayed his avenging hand and hastened to ask her more gently, "'How can you suspect my partner, Monsieur Richard, of putting twenty thousand francs in his pocket?' "'I never said that,' declared Madame Jury, "'seeing that it was myself who put the twenty thousand francs into Monsieur Richard's pocket,' and she added under her voice there it's out and may the ghost forgive me richard began bellowing anew but moncharmin authoritatively ordered him to be silent allow me allow me let the woman explain herself let me question her and he added it is really astonishing that you should take up such a tone 
we are on the verge of clearing up the whole mystery, and you're in a rage. You're wrong to behave like that. I'm enjoying myself immensely. Madame Jury, like the martyr that she was, raised her head, her face beaming with faith in her own innocence. You tell me there were twenty thousand francs in the envelope which I put into Monsieur Richard's pocket, but I tell you again I knew nothing about it, nor Monsieur Richard either, for that matter. Aha! said Richard, suddenly assuming a swaggering air which Moncharmin did not like. I knew nothing either. You put twenty thousand francs in my pocket, and I knew nothing either. I am very glad to hear it, Madame Jury. Yes, the terrible dame agreed. Yes, it's true. We neither of us knew anything. But you, you must have ended by finding out. Richard would certainly have swallowed Madame Jury alive if Moncharmin had not been there. But Moncharmin protected her. He resumed his questions. What sort of envelope did you put in Monsieur Richard's pocket? It was not the one which we gave you, the one which you took to Box 5 before our eyes, and yet that was the one which contained the twenty thousand francs. I beg your pardon. The envelope which Monsieur le Directeur gave me was the one which I slipped into Monsieur le Directeur's pocket, explained Madame Jury. The one which I took to the ghost box was another envelope, just like it, which the ghost gave me beforehand, and which I hid up my sleeve. So saying, Madame Jury took from her sleeve an envelope ready prepared and similarly addressed to that containing the twenty thousand francs. The managers took it from her. They examined it, and saw that it was fastened with seals stamped with their own managerial seal. They opened it. It contained twenty bank of St. Farce notes, like those which had so much astounded them the month before. "'How simple!' said Richard. "'How simple!' repeated Moncharmin, and he continued with his eyes fixed upon Madame Jury as though trying to hypnotize her. "'So it was the ghost who gave you this envelope and told you to substitute it for the one which we gave you, and it was the ghost who told you to put the other into Monsieur Richard's pocket?' Yes, it was the ghost. Then would you mind giving us a specimen of your little talents? Here is the envelope. Act as though we knew nothing. As you please, gentlemen. Madame Jury took the envelope with the twenty notes inside it and made for the door. She was on the point of going out when the two managers rushed at her. Oh, no, oh, no, we're not going to be done a second time. Once bitten, twice shy. "'I beg your pardon, gentlemen,' said the old woman, in self-excuse. "'You told me to act as though you knew nothing. "'Well, if you knew nothing, I should go away with your envelope.' "'And then how would you slip it into my pocket?' argued Richard, whom Moncharmin fixed with his left eye while keeping his right on Madame Jury, a proceeding likely to strain his sight, but Moncharmin was prepared to go to any length to discover the truth. I am to slip it into your pocket when you least expect it, sir. You know that I always take a little turn behind the scenes in the course of the evening, and I often go with my daughter to the ballet foyer, which I am entitled to do as her mother. I bring her her shoes when the ballet is about to begin. In fact, I come and I go as I please. The subscribers come and go too. So do you, sir. There are lots of people about. I go behind you and slip the envelope into the tail-pocket of your dress-coat. There's no witchcraft about that. No witchcraft, growled Richard, rolling his eyes like Jupiter Tonnins. 
No witchcraft. Why, I've just caught you in a lie, you old witch. Madame Jury bristled with her three teeth sticking out of her mouth. And why, may I ask? Because I spent that evening watching Box 5 and the sham envelope which you put there. I did not go to the ballet foyer for a second. No, sir, and I did not give you the envelope that evening. But at the next performance, on the evening when the Undersecretary of State for Fine Arts— At these words, Monsieur Richard suddenly interrupted Madame Jury. Yes, that's true, I remember now. The Undersecretary went behind the scenes. He asked for me. I went down to the ballet foyer for a moment. I was on the foyer steps. The Undersecretary and his chief clerk were in the foyer itself. I suddenly turned around. You had passed behind me, Madame Jury. You seemed to push against me. Oh, I can see you still. I can see you still. Yes, that's it, sir, that's it. I had just finished my little business. That pocket of yours, sir, is very handy. And Madame Jury once more suited the action to the word. She passed behind Monsieur Richard, and so nimbly that Monsieurman himself was impressed by it, slipped the envelope into the pocket of one of the tails of Monsieur Richard's dress coat. Of course, exclaimed Richard, looking a little pale. It's very clever of O.G. The problem which he had to solve was this, how to do away with any dangerous intermediary between the man who gives the twenty thousand francs and the man who receives it, and by far the best thing he could hit upon was to come and take the money from my pocket without my noticing it, as I myself did not know that it was there. It's wonderful. Oh, wonderful, no doubt, Moncharmin agreed. Only you forget, Richard, that I provided ten thousand francs of the twenty, and that nobody put anything in my pocket. End of chapter 16Chapter 17 of The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux. Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17 The Safety Pin Again. Moncharmin's last phrase so dearly expressed the suspicion in which he now held his partner that it was bound to cause a stormy explanation at the end of which it was agreed that Richard should yield to all Moncharmin's wishes, with the object of helping him to discover the miscreant who was victimizing them. This brings us to the interval after the Garden Act, with the strange conduct observed by Monsieur Remy, and those curious lapses from the dignity that might be expected of the managers. It was arranged between Richard and Moncharmin, first, that Richard should repeat the exact movements which he had made on the night of the disappearance of the first twenty thousand francs, and second, that Moncharmin should not for an instant lose sight of Richard's coat-tail pocket into which Madame Jury was to slip the twenty thousand francs. Monsieur Richard went and placed himself at the identical spot where he had stood when he bowed to the undersecretary for fine arts. Monsieur Moncharmin took up his position a few steps behind him. Madame Jury passed, rubbed up against Monsieur Richard, got rid of her twenty thousand francs in the manager's coat-tail pocket, and disappeared, or rather she was conjured away. In accordance with the instructions received from Moncharmin a few minutes earlier, Mercier took the good lady to the acting manager's office and turned the key on her, thus making it impossible for her to communicate with her ghost. 
Meanwhile, Monsieur Richard was bending and bowing and scraping and walking backward, just as if he had that high and mighty minister, the under-secretary for fine arts, before him. Only, though these marks of politeness would have created no astonishment, if the under-secretary of state had really been in front of Monsieur Richard, they caused an easily comprehensible amazement to the spectators of this very natural but quite inexplicable scene when Monsieur Richard had nobody in front of him. Monsieur Richard bowed to nobody, bent his back before nobody, and walked backward before nobody, and a few steps behind him Monsieur Moncharmin did the same thing that he was doing in addition to pushing away Monsieur Remy and begging Monsieur de la Borderie, the ambassador and the manager of the Credit Central, not to touch Monsieur le Directeur. Moncharmin, who had his own ideas, did not want Richard to come to him presently when the twenty thousand francs were gone and say, Perhaps it was the ambassador, or the manager of the Credit Central, or Remy the more so as at the time of the first scene as richard himself admitted richard had met nobody in that part of the theatre after madame Giry had brushed up against him having begun by walking backward in order to bow richard continued to do so from prudence until he reached the passage leading to the offices of the management in this way he was constantly watched by moncharmin from behind and himself kept an eye on anyone approaching from the front once more this novel method of walking behind the scenes, adopted by the managers of our National Academy of Music, attracted attention, but the managers themselves thought of nothing but their twenty thousand francs. On reaching the half-dark passage, Richard said to Moncharmin in a low voice, I am sure that nobody has touched me. You had now better keep at some distance from me and watch me till I come to the door of the office. It is better not to arouse suspicion and we can see anything that happens. But Moncharmin replied, No, Richard, no. You walk ahead, and I'll walk immediately behind you. I won't leave you by a step. But in that case, exclaimed Richard, they will never steal our twenty thousand francs. I should hope not, indeed, declared Moncharmin. Then what we are doing is absurd. We are doing exactly what we did last time. Last time I joined you as you were leaving the stage and followed close behind you down this passage. That's true, sighed Richard, shaking his head and passively obeying Moncharmin. Two minutes later the joint managers locked themselves into their office. Moncharmin himself put the key in his pocket. We remained locked up like this last time, he said, until you left the opera to go home. That's so. No one came and disturbed us, I suppose no one then said richard who was trying to collect his memory then i must certainly have been robbed on my way home from the opera no said moncharmin in a drier tone than ever no that's impossible for i dropped you in my cab that twenty thousand francs disappeared at your place there's not a shadow of a doubt about that it's incredible protested richard i am sure of my servants and if one of them had done it, he would have disappeared since. Moncharmin shrugged his shoulders, as though to say that he did not wish to enter into details, and Richard began to think that Moncharmin was treating him in a very insupportable fashion. Moncharmin, I've had enough of this. Richard, I've had too much of it. Do you dare to suspect me? Yes, of a silly joke. 
one doesn't joke with twenty thousand francs that's what i think declared moncharmin unfolding a newspaper and ostentatiously studying its contents what are you doing asked richard are you going to read the paper next yes richard until i take you home like last time yes like last time richard snatched the paper from moncharmin's hands moncharmin stood up more irritated than ever and found himself faced by an exasperated richard who crossing his arms on his chest said look here i'm thinking of this i'm thinking of what i might think if like last time after my spending the evening alone with you you brought me home and if at the moment of parting i perceived that twenty thousand francs had disappeared from my coat pocket like last time and what might you think asked moncharmin crimson with rage i might think that as you hadn't left me by a foot's breadth and as by your own wish you were the only one to approach me like last time i might think that if that twenty thousand francs was no longer in my pocket it stood a very good chance of being in yours moncharmin leaped up at the suggestion oh he shouted a safety pin what do you want a safety pin for to fasten you up with a safety pin a safety pin you want to fasten me with a safety pin yes to fasten you to the twenty thousand francs then whether it's here or on the drive from here to your place or at your place you will feel the hand that pulls at your pocket and you will see if it's mine oh so you're suspecting me now are you a safety pin and that was the moment when moncharmin opened the door on the passage and shouted a safety pin somebody give me a safety pin and we also know how at the same moment remy who had no safety pin was received by moncharmin while a boy procured the pin so eagerly longed for and what happened was this moncharmin first locked the door again then he knelt down behind richard's back i hope he said that the notes are still there so do i said richard the real ones asked moncharmin resolved not to be had this time look for yourself said richard i refuse to touch them moncharmin took the envelope from richard's pocket and drew out the banknotes with a trembling hand for this time in order frequently to make sure of the presence of the notes he had not sealed the envelope nor even fastened it he felt reassured on finding that they were all there and quite genuine he put them back in the tail-pocket and pinned them with great care then he sat down behind richard's coat-tails and kept his eyes fixed on them while richard sitting at his writing-table did not stir a little patience richard said moncharmin we have only a few minutes to wait the clock will soon strike twelve last time we left at the last stroke of twelve oh i shall have all the patience necessary the time passed slow heavy mysterious stifling richard tried to laugh i shall end by believing in the omnipotence of the ghost he said just now don't you find something uncomfortable disquieting alarming in the atmosphere of this room you're quite right said moncharmin who was really impressed the ghost continued richard in a low voice as though fearing lest he should be overheard by invisible ears the ghost suppose all the same it were a ghost who puts the magic envelopes on the table who talks in box five who killed joseph bouquet 
who unhooked the chandelier and who robs us for after all after all after all there is no one here except you and me and if the notes disappear and neither you nor i have anything to do with it well we shall have to believe in the ghost in the ghost at that moment the clock on the mantelpiece gave its warning click and the first stroke of twelve struck the two managers shuddered the perspiration streamed from their foreheads the twelfth stroke sounded strangely in their ears when the clock stopped they gave a sigh and rose from their chairs i think we can go now said moncharmin i think so richard agreed before we go do you mind if i look in your pocket but of course moncharmin you must well he asked as moncharmin was feeling at the pocket well i can feel the pin of course as you said we can't be robbed without noticing it but moncharmin whose hands were still fumbling bellowed i can feel the pin but i can't feel the notes come no joking moncharmin this isn't the time for it well feel for yourself richard tore off his coat the two managers turned the pocket inside out the pocket was empty and the curious thing was that the pin remained stuck in the same place richard and moncharmin turned pale there was no longer any doubt about the witchcraft the ghost muttered moncharmin but richard suddenly sprang upon his partner no one but you has touched my pocket give me back my twenty thousand francs give me back my twenty thousand francs oh my soul sighed moncharmin who was ready to swoon on my soul i swear that i haven't got it then somebody knocked at the door moncharmin opened it automatically seemed hardly to recognize mercier his business manager exchanged a few words with him without knowing what he was saying and with an unconscious movement put the safety pin for which he had no further use into the hands of his bewildered subordinate end of chapter seventeen chapter eighteen of the phantom of the opera by gaston leroux translated by alexander tezera de matos this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter eighteen the commissary the viscount and the persian the first words of the commissary of police on entering the manager's office were to ask after the missing prima donna is christine day here christine day here echoed richard no why as for moncharmin he had not the strength left to utter a word richard repeated for the commissary and the compact crowd which had followed him into the office observed an impressive silence why do you ask if christine day is here monsieur le commissaire because she has to be found declared the commissary of police solemnly what do you mean she has to be found has she disappeared in the middle of the performance in the middle of the performance this is extraordinary isn't it and what is quite as extraordinary is that you should first learn it from me yes said richard taking his head in his hands and muttering what is this new business oh it's enough to make a man send in his resignation and he pulled a few hairs out of his moustache without even knowing what he was doing so she so she disappeared in the middle of the performance he repeated yes she was carried off in the prison act at the moment when she was invoking the aid of the angels 
but I doubt if she was carried off by an angel. And I am sure that she was. Everybody looked round. A young man, pale and trembling with excitement, repeated, I am sure of it. Sure of what? asked me Freud. That Christine Day was carried off by an angel, Monsieur le Commissaire, and I can tell you his name. Aha, Monsieur le Vicomte de Chagny. So you maintain that Christine Day was carried off by an angel, an angel of the opera, no doubt? Yes, monsieur, by an angel of the opera, and I will tell you where he lives when we are alone. You are right, monsieur. And the commissary of police, inviting Raoul to take a chair, cleared the room of all the rest excepting the managers. Then Raoul spoke. Monsieur le commissaire, the angel is called Eric. He lives in the opera, and he is the angel of music. The angel of music, really. That is very curious. The angel of music. And turning to the managers, Monsieur Mifroid asked, Have you an angel of music on the premises, gentlemen? Richard and Moncharmin shook their heads without even speaking. Oh, said the Viscount, those gentlemen have heard of the opera ghost. Well, I am in a position to state that the opera ghost and the angel of music are one and the same person, and his real name is Eric. Monsieur Mifroid rose and looked at Raoul attentively. I beg your pardon, monsieur, but is it your intention to make fun of the law? And if not, what is all this about the opera ghost? I say that these gentlemen have heard of him. Gentlemen, it appears that you know the opera ghost. Richard rose with the remaining hairs of his mustache in his hand. No, monsieur commissary, no, we do not know him, but we wish that we did, for this very evening he has robbed us of twenty thousand francs. And Richard turned a terrible look on Moncharmin, which seemed to say, Give me back the twenty thousand francs, or I'll tell the whole story. Moncharmin understood what he meant, for with a distracted gesture he said, Oh, tell everything and have it done with. As for Mifroid, he looked at the managers and at Raoul by turns, and wondered whether he had strayed into a lunatic asylum. He passed his hand through his hair. A ghost, he said, who on the same evening carries off an opera singer and steals twenty thousand francs, is a ghost who must have his hands very full. If you don't mind, we will take the questions in order. The singer first, the twenty thousand francs after. Come, Monsieur de Chagny. Let us try to talk seriously. You believe that Mademoiselle Christine Day has been carried off by an individual called Eric. Do you know this person? Have you seen him? Yes. Where? In a churchyard. Monsieur Mifroy gave a start, began to scrutinize Raoul again, and said, Of course, that's where ghosts usually hang out. And what were you doing in that churchyard? Monsieur, said Raoul, I can quite understand how absurd my replies must seem to you, but I beg you to believe that I am in full possession of my faculties. The safety of the person dearest to me in the world is at stake. I should like to convince you in a few words, for time is pressing and every minute is valuable. Unfortunately, if I do not tell you the strangest story that ever was from the beginning, you will not believe me. I will tell you all I know about the opera ghost, monsieur, commissary. Alas, I do not know much. Never mind. Go on, go on, exclaimed Richard and Moncharmin, suddenly greatly interested. 
Unfortunately for their hopes of learning some detail that could put them on the track of their hoaxer, they were soon compelled to accept the fact that Monsieur Raoul de Chagny had completely lost his head. All that story about Paris Garek, Death's Head, and Enchanted Violins could only have taken birth in the disordered brain of a youth mad with love. It was evident also that Monsieur Commissaire Miffroy shared their view, and the magistrate would certainly have cut short the incoherent narrative if circumstances had not taken it upon themselves to interrupt it. The door opened and a man entered, curiously dressed in an enormous frock coat and a tall hat, at once shabby and shiny, that came down to his ears. He went up to the commissary and spoke to him in a whisper. It was doubtless a detective come to deliver an important communication. During this conversation, Monsieur Mifroy did not take his eyes off Raoul. At last, addressing him, he said, Monsieur, we have talked enough about the ghost. We will now talk about yourself a little, if you have no objection. You were to carry off Mademoiselle Christine Day tonight? Yes, Monsieur le Commissaire. After the performance? Yes, Monsieur le Commissaire. All your arrangements were made? Yes, Monsieur le Commissaire. The carriage that brought you was to take you both away. There were fresh horses in readiness at every stage. That is true, Monsieur le Commissaire. And nevertheless your carriage is still outside the rotunda awaiting your orders, is it not? Yes, Monsieur le Commissaire. Did you know that there were three other carriages there in addition to yours? I did not pay the least attention. They were the carriages of Mademoiselle Sorelli, which could not find room in the Cordelot administration of Carlotta, and of your brother, Monsieur le Comte de Chagny. Very likely. What is certain is that though your carriage and Sorelli's and Carlotta's are still there by the rotunda pavement, Monsieur le Comte de Chagny's carriage is gone. This has nothing to say to— I beg your pardon. Was not Monsieur le Comte opposed to your marriage with Mademoiselle Day? That is a matter that only concerns the family. You have answered my question. He was opposed to it, and that was why you were carrying Christine Day out of your brother's reach. Well, Monsieur de Chagny, allow me to inform you that your brother has been smarter than you. It is he who has carried off Christine Day. Oh, impossible, moaned Raoul pressing his hand to his heart. "'Are you sure?' "'Immediately after the artist's disappearance, which was procured by means which we have still to ascertain, he flung into his carriage, which drove right across Paris at a furious pace.' "'Across Paris?' asked poor Raoul in a hoarse voice. "'What do you mean by across Paris?' "'Across Paris and out of Paris, by the Brussels Road.' "'Oh!' cried the young man. I shall catch them, and he rushed out of the office. And bring her back to us, cried the commissary gaily. Ah, that's a trick worth two of the angel of musics. And turning to his audience, Monsieur Miffroy delivered a little lecture on police methods. I don't know for a moment whether Monsieur le Comte de Chagny has really carried Christine Day off or not, but I want to know, and I believe that at this moment— no one is more anxious to inform us than his brother, and now he is flying in pursuit of him. He is my chief auxiliary. 
this gentleman is the art of the police which is believed to be so complicated and which nevertheless appears so simple as soon as you see that it consists in getting your work done by people who have nothing to do with the police but monsieur le commissaire de police mifroy would not have been quite so satisfied with himself if he had known that the rush of his rapid emissary was stopped at the entrance to the very first corridor a tall figure blocked raoul's way where are you going so fast monsieur de chagny asked the voice raoul impatiently raised his eyes and recognized the astrakhan cap of an hour ago he stopped it's you he cried in a feverish voice you who know eric's secrets and don't want me to speak of them who are you you know who i am i am the persian End of chapter eighteen chapter nineteen of the phantom of the opera by gaston larue translated by alexander tezera de matos this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19. The Viscount and the Persian Raoul now remembered that his brother had once shown him that mysterious person of whom nothing was known except that he was a Persian and that he lived in a little old-fashioned flat in the Rue de Rivoli. The man with the ebony skin, the eyes of jade, and the astrakhan cap bent over Raoul i hope monsieur de chagny he said that you have not betrayed eric's secret and why should i hesitate to betray that monster sir raoul rejoined haughtily trying to shake off the intruder is he your friend by any chance i hope that you said nothing about eric sir because eric's secret is also christine day's and to talk about one is to talk about the other oh sir said raoul becoming more and more impatient you seem to know about many things that interest me and yet i have no time to listen to you once more monsieur de chagny where are you going so fast cannot you guess to christine day's assistance then sir stay here for christine day is here with eric with eric how do you know i was at the performance and no one in the world but eric could contrive an abduction like that oh he said with a deep sigh i recognize the monster's touch you know him then the persian did not reply but heaved a fresh sigh sir said raoul i do not know what your intentions are but can you do anything to help me i mean to help christine day i think so monsieur de chagny and that is why i spoke to you what can you do try to take you to her and to him if you can do me that service sir my life is yours one word more the commissary of police tells me that christine day has been carried off by my brother count felipe oh monsieur de chagny i don't believe a word of it it's not possible is it i don't know if it is possible or not but there are ways and ways of carrying people off and monsieur le comte philippe has never as far as i know had anything to do with witchcraft your arguments are convincing sir and i am a fool oh let us make haste i place myself entirely in your hands 
how should i not believe you when you are the only one to believe me when you are the only one not to smile when eric's name is mentioned and the young man impetuously seized the persian's hands they were ice cold silence said the persian stopping and listening to the distant sounds of the theatre we must not mention that name here let us say he and him then there will be less danger of attracting his attention do you think he is near us it is quite possible sir if he is not at this moment with his victim in the house on the lake ah so you know that house too if he is not there he may be here in this wall in this floor in this ceiling come and the persian asking raoul to deaden the sound of his footsteps led him down passages which raoul had never seen before even at the time when christine used to take him for walks through that labyrinth if only darius has come said the persian who is darius darius my servant they were now in the centre of a real deserted square an immense apartment ill-lit by a small lamp the persian stopped raoul and in the softest of whispers asked what did you say to the commissary i said that christine day's abductor was the angel of music alias the opera ghost and that the real name was hush and did he believe you no he attached no importance to what you said no he took you for a bit of a madman yes so much the better sighed the persian and they continued their road after going up and down several staircases which raoul had never seen before the two men found themselves in front of a door which the persian opened with a master key the persian and raoul were both of course in dress clothes but whereas raoul had a tall hat the persian wore the astrakhan cap which i have already mentioned it was an infringement of the rule which insists upon the tall hat behind the scenes but in france foreigners are allowed every license the englishman his travelling cap the persian his cap of astrakhan sir said the persian your tall hat will be in your way you would do well to leave it in the dressing-room what dressing-room asked raoul christine days and the persian letting raoul through the door which he had just opened showed him the actress's room opposite they were at the end of the passage the whole length of which raoul had been accustomed to traverse before knocking at christine's door how well you know the opera sir not so well as he does said the persian modestly and he pushed the young man into christine's dressing-room which was as raoul had left it a few minutes earlier closing the door the persian went to a very thin partition that separated the dressing-room from a big lumber-room next to it he listened and then coughed loudly there was a sound of someone stirring in the lumber-room and a few seconds later a finger tapped at the door come in said the persian a man entered also wearing an astrakhan cap and dressed in a long overcoat he bowed and took a richly carved case from under his coat put it on the dressing-table bowed once again and went to the door did no one see you come in darius no master let no one see you go out the servant glanced down the passage and swiftly disappeared the persian opened the case it contained a pair of long pistols 
when christine day was carried off sir i sent word to my servant to bring me these pistols i have had them a long time and they can be relied upon do you mean to fight a duel asked the young man it will certainly be a duel which we shall have to fight said the other examining the priming of his pistols and what a duel handing one of the pistols to raoul he added in this duel we shall be two to one but you must be prepared for everything for we shall be fighting the most terrible adversary that you can imagine but you love christine day do you not i worship the ground she stands on but you sir who do not love her tell me why i find you ready to risk your life for her you must certainly hate eric no sir said the persian sadly i do not hate him if i hated him he would long ago have ceased doing harm has he done you harm i have forgiven him the harm which he has done me i do not understand you you treat him as a monster you speak of his crime he has done you harm and i find in you the same inexplicable pity that drove me to despair when i saw it in christine the persian did not reply he fetched a stool and set it against the wall facing the great mirror that filled the whole of the wall space opposite then he climbed on the stool and with his nose to the wallpaper seemed to be looking for something ah he said after a long search i have it and raising his finger above his head he pressed against a corner in the pattern of the paper then he turned round and jumped off the stool in half a minute he said he shall be on his road and crossing the whole of the dressing-room he felt the great mirror no it is not yielding yet he muttered oh are we going out by the mirror asked raoul like christine day so you knew that christine day went out by that mirror she did so before my eyes sir i was hidden behind the curtain of the inner room and i saw her vanish not by the glass but in the glass and what did you do i thought it was an aberration of my senses a mad dream or some new fancy of the ghost chuckled the persian ah monsieur de chagny he continued still with his hand on the mirror would that we had to do with a ghost we could then leave our pistols in their case put down your hat please there and now cover your shirt-front as much as you can with your coat as i am doing bring the lapels forward turn up the collar we must make ourselves as invisible as possible bearing against the mirror after a short silence he said it takes some time to release the counterbalance when you press on the spring from the inside of the room it is different when you are behind the wall and can act directly on the counterbalance then the mirror turns at once and is moved with incredible rapidity what counterbalance asked raoul why the counterbalance that lifts the whole of this wall on to its pivot you surely don't expect it to move of itself by enchantment if you watch you will see the mirror first rise an inch or two and then shift an inch or two from left to right it will then be on a pivot and will swing round 
"'It's not turning,' said Raoul impatiently. "'Oh, wait. You have time enough to be impatient, sir. The mechanism has obviously become rusty, or else the spring isn't working, unless it is something else,' added the Persian anxiously. "'What?' He may simply have cut the cord of the counterbalance and blocked the whole apparatus. Why should he? He does not know that we are coming this way. I dare say he suspects it, for he knows that I understand the system. It's not turning. And Christine, sir, Christine? The Persian said coldly, We shall do all that it is humanly possible to do, but he may stop us at the first step. He commands the walls, the doors, and the trapdoors. In my country he was known by a name which means the trapdoor lover. But why do these walls obey him alone? He did not build them. Yes, sir, that is just what he did. Raoul looked at him in amazement, but the Persian made a sign to him to be silent and pointed to the glass. There was a sort of shivering reflection. Their image was troubled as in a rippling sheet of water, and then all became stationary again. "'You see, sir, that it is not turning. Let us take another road.' "'Tonight there is no other,' declared the Persian in a singularly mournful voice. "'And now look out, and be ready to fire.' He himself raised his pistol opposite the glass. Raoul imitated his movement. With his free arm the Persian drew the young man to his chest, and suddenly the mirror turned, in a blinding daze of cross-lights. It turned like one of those revolving doors which have lately been fixed to the entrance of most restaurants. It turned, carrying Raoul and the Persian with it, and suddenly hurling them from the full light into the deepest darkness. End of chapter 19「Chapter Twenty of the Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux, translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty in the Cellars of the Opera. Your hand high, ready to fire, repeated Raoul's companion quickly. The wall behind them, having completed the circle which it described upon itself, closed again, and the two men stood motionless for a moment, holding their breath. At last the Persian decided to make a movement, and Raoul heard him slip on his knees and feel for something in the dark with his groping hands. Suddenly the darkness was made visible by a small dark lantern, and Raoul instinctively stepped backward as though to escape the scrutiny of a secret enemy, but he soon perceived that the light belonged to the Persian, whose movements he was closely observing. The little red disc was turned in every direction, and Raoul saw that the floor, the walls, and the ceiling were all formed of planking. It must have been the ordinary road taken by Eric to reach Christine's dressing-room and impose upon her innocence, and Raoul, remembering the Persian's remark, thought that it had been mysteriously constructed by the ghost himself. Later he learned that Eric had found, all prepared for him, a secret passage, long known to himself alone, and contrived at the time of the Paris Commune to allow the jailers to convey their prisoners straight to the dungeons that had been constructed for them in the cellars, for the Federates had occupied the Opera House immediately after the 18th of March, and had made a starting-place right at the top for their Montgolfier balloons, which carried their incendiary proclamations to the departments, 
and a state prison right at the bottom. The Persian went on his knees and put his lantern on the ground. He seemed to be working at the floor, and suddenly he turned off his light. Then Raoul heard a faint click and saw a very pale luminous square in the floor of the passage. It was as though a window had opened on the opera cellars which were still lit. Raoul no longer saw the Persian, but he suddenly felt him by his side and heard him whisper, Follow me, and do all that I do. Raoul turned to the luminous aperture. Then he saw the Persian, who was still on his knees, hang by his hands from the rim of the opening, with his pistol between his teeth, and slide into the cellar below. Curiously enough, the Viscount had absolute confidence in the Persian, though he knew nothing about him. His emotion when speaking of the monster struck him as sincere, and if the Persian had cherished any sinister designs against him, he would not have armed him with his own hands. Besides, Raoul must reach Christine at all costs. He therefore went on his knees also and hung from the trap with both hands. "'Let go,' said a voice, and he dropped into the arms of the Persian, who told him to lie down flat, closed the trap-door above him, and crouched down beside him. Raoul tried to ask a question, but the Persian's hand was on his mouth, and he heard a voice which he recognized as that of the commissary of police. Raoul and the Persian were completely hidden behind a wooden partition. Near them a small staircase led to a little room in which the commissary appeared to be walking up and down asking questions. The faint light was just enough to enable Raoul to distinguish the shape of things around him, and he could not restrain a dull cry. There were three corpses there. The first lay on the narrow landing of the little staircase. The two others had rolled to the bottom of the staircase. Raoul could have touched one of the two poor wretches by passing his fingers through the partition. "'Silence!' whispered the Persian. He too had seen the bodies, and he gave one word in explanation. "'He!' The commissary's voice was now heard more distinctly. He was asking for information about the system of lighting which the stage manager supplied. The commissary, therefore, must be in the organ or its immediate neighborhood. Contrary to what one might think, especially in connection with an opera house, the organ is not a musical instrument. At that time electricity was employed only for a very few scenic effects, and for the bells. The immense building and the stage itself were still lit by gas. Hydrogen was used to regulate and modify the lighting of a scene, and this was done by means of a special apparatus, which, because of the multiplicity of its pipes, was known as the organ. A box beside the prompter's box was reserved for the chief gas man, who from there gave his orders to his assistants and saw that they were executed. Mauclair stayed in this box during all the performances, but now Mauclair was not in his box and his assistants not in their places. Mauclair! Mauclair! The stage manager's voice echoed through the cellars, but Mauclair did not reply. I have said that a door opened on a little staircase that led to the second cellar. The commissary pushed it, but it resisted. I say, he said to the stage manager, I can't open this door. Is it always so difficult? The stage manager forced it open with his shoulder. He saw that at the same time he was pushing a human body, and he could not keep back an exclamation, for he recognized the body at once. Mauclair! Poor devil! He is dead! But Mr. Commissary Mifroid, whom nothing surprised, was stooping over that big body. No, he said. 
He is dead drunk, which is not quite the same thing. It's the first time, if so, said the stage manager. Then someone has given him a narcotic. That is quite possible. Mifroid went down a few steps and said, Look! By the light of a little red lantern at the foot of the stairs, they saw two other bodies. The stage manager recognized Mauclair's assistants. Mifroid went down and listened to their breathing. They are sound asleep, he said. Very curious business. Some person unknown must have interfered with the gas man and his staff, and that person unknown was obviously working on behalf of the kidnapper. But what a funny idea to kidnap a performer on the stage. Send for the doctor of the theater, please. And Mifroid repeated, Curious, decidedly curious business. Then he turned to the little room, addressing the people whom Raoul and the Persian were unable to see from where they lay. What do you say to all this, gentlemen? You are the only ones who have not given your views, and yet you must have an opinion of some sort. Thereupon Raoul and the Persian saw the startled faces of the joint managers appear above the landing, and they heard Moncharmin's excited voice. There are things happening here, Mr. Commissary, which we are unable to explain. And the two faces disappeared. "'Thank you for the information, gentlemen,' said Mifroid, with a jeer. But the stage manager, holding his chin in the hollow of his right hand, which is the attitude of profound thought, said, "'It is not the first time that Mauclair has fallen asleep in the theatre. I remember finding him one evening snoring in his little recess, with his snuff-box beside him.' "'Is that long ago?' asked Monsieur Mifroid, carefully wiping his eyeglasses. No, not so very long ago. Wait a bit. It was the night—of course, yes. It was the night when Carlotta, you know, Mr. Commissary, gave her famous coack. Really? The night when Carlotta gave her famous coack. And Monsieur Mifroid, replacing his gleaming glasses on his nose, fixed the stage manager with a contemplative stare. So Mauclair takes snuff, does he? he asked carelessly. Yes, Mr. Commissary. Look, there is his snuff-box on that little shelf. Oh, he's a great snuff-taker. So am I, said Mifroid, and put the snuff-box in his pocket. Raoul and the Persian, themselves unobserved, watched the removal of the three bodies by a number of scene-shifters, who were followed by the commissary and all the people with him. Their steps were heard for a few minutes on the stage above. When they were alone, the Persian made a sign to Raoul to stand up. Raoul did so but as he did not lift his hand in front of his eyes, ready to fire, the Persian told him to resume that attitude and to continue it, whatever happened. "'But it tires the hand unnecessarily,' whispered Raoul. "'If I do fire, I shan't be sure of my aim.' "'Then shift your pistol to the other hand,' said the Persian. "'I can't shoot with my left hand.' Thereupon the Persian made this queer reply, which was certainly not calculated to throw light into the young man's flurried brain. It's not a question of shooting with the right hand or the left. It's a question of holding one of your hands as though you were going to pull the trigger of a pistol with your arm bent. As for the pistol itself, when all is said, you can put that in your pocket. And he added, let this be clearly understood, or I will answer for nothing. It is a matter of life and death, and now silence, and follow me. 
The cellars of the opera are enormous, and they are five in number. Raoul followed the Persian and wondered what he would have done without his companion in that extraordinary labyrinth. They went down to the third cellar, and their progress was still lit by some distant lamp. The lower they went, the more precautions the Persian seemed to take. He kept on turning to Raoul to see if he was holding his arm properly, showing him how he himself carried his hand, as if always ready to fire, though the pistol was in his pocket. Suddenly a loud voice made them stop. Someone above them shouted, "'All the door-shutters on the stage! The commissary of police wants them!' Steps were heard, and shadows glided through the darkness. The Persian drew Raoul behind a set-piece. They saw passing before them, and above them, old men bent by age and the past burden of opera scenery. Some could hardly drag themselves along. Others, from habit, with stooping bodies and outstretched hands, looked for doors to shut. They were the door-shutters, the old, worn-out scene-shifters, on whom a charitable management had taken pity, giving them the job of shutting doors above and below the stage. They went about incessantly from top to bottom of the building, shutting the doors, and they were also called the draft-expellers, at least at that time, for I have little doubt that by now they are all dead. Drafts are very bad for the voice, wherever they may come from. The two men might have stumbled over them, waking them up and provoking a request for explanations. For the moment Monsieur Mifroid's inquiry saved them from any such unpleasant encounters. The Persian and Raoul welcomed this incident, which relieved them of inconvenient witnesses, for some of those door-shutters, having nothing else to do or nowhere to lay their heads, stayed at the opera, from idleness or necessity, and spent the night there. But they were not left to enjoy their solitude for long. Other shades now came down by the same way by which the door-shutters had gone up. Each of these shades carried a little lantern and moved it about, above, below, and all around, as though looking for something or somebody. "'Hang it!' muttered the Persian. "'I don't know what they are looking for, but they might easily find us. Let us get away quick. Your hand up, sir, ready to fire. Bend your arm. More. That's it. Hand at the level of your eye, as though you were fighting a duel and waiting for the word to fire.' Oh, leave your pistol in your pocket. Quick, come along downstairs. Level of your eye. Question of life or death. Here, this way, these stairs. They reached the fifth cellar. Oh, what a duel, sir, what a duel. Once in the fifth cellar, the Persian drew breath. He seemed to enjoy a rather greater sense of security than he had displayed when they both stopped in the third, but he never altered the attitude of his hand and Raoul, remembering the Persian's observation, I know these pistols can be relied upon, was more and more astonished, wondering why anyone should be so gratified at being able to rely upon a pistol which he did not intend to use. But the Persian left him no time for reflection. Telling Raoul to stay where he was, he ran up a few steps of the staircase which they had just left, and then returned. "'How stupid of us!' he whispered. "'We shall soon have seen the end of those men with their lanterns. "'It is the firemen going their rounds.' "'The two men waited five minutes longer. "'Then the Persian took Raoul up the stairs again, "'but suddenly he stopped him with a gesture. "'Something moved in the darkness before them. 
"'Flat on your stomach,' whispered the Persian. The two men lay flat on the floor. They were only just in time. A shade, this time carrying no light, just a shade in the shade, passed. It passed close to them, near enough to touch them. They felt the warmth of its cloak upon them, for they could distinguish the shade sufficiently to see that it wore a cloak which shrouded it from head to foot. On its head it had a soft felt hat. It moved away, drawing its feet against the walls and sometimes giving a kick into a corner. Whew, said the Persian. We've had a narrow escape. That shade knows me and has twice taken me to the manager's office. Is it someone belonging to the theater police? asked Raoul. It's someone much worse than that, replied the Persian, without giving any further explanation. It's not he? He? If he does not come behind us, we shall always see his yellow eyes. That is more or less our safeguard tonight. But he may come from behind, stealing up, and we are dead men if we do not keep our hands as though about to fire at the level of our eyes, in front. The Persian had hardly finished speaking when a fantastic face came in sight, a whole fiery face, not only two yellow eyes. Yes, a head of fire came toward them, at a man's height, but with no body attached to it. The face shed fire, looked in the darkness like a flame shaped as a man's face. Oh, said the Persian between his teeth, I have never seen this before. Pampin was not mad, after all. He had seen it. What can that flame be? It is not he, but he must have sent it. Take care, take care your hand at the level of your eyes in heaven's name at the level of your eyes know most of his tricks but not this one come let us run it is safer hand at the level of your eyes and they fled down the long passage that opened before them after a few seconds that seemed to them like long minutes they stopped he doesn't often come this way said the persian this side has nothing to do with him this side does not lead to the lake nor to the house on the lake, but perhaps he knows that we are at his heels, although I promised him to leave him alone and never to meddle in his business again. So saying, he turned his head, and Raoul also turned his head, and they again saw the head of fire behind their two heads. It had followed them, and it must have run also, and perhaps faster than they, for it seemed to be nearer to them. At the same time they began to perceive a certain noise of which they could not guess the nature. They simply noticed that the sound seemed to move and to approach with the fiery face. It was a noise as though thousands of nails had been scraped against a blackboard, the perfectly unendurable noise that is sometimes made by a little stone inside the chalk that grates on the blackboard. They continued to retreat, but the fiery face came on, came on, gaining on them, they could see its features clearly now. The eyes were round and staring, the nose a little crooked, and the mouth large with a hanging lower lip, very like the eyes, nose, and lip of the moon, when the moon is quite red, bright red. How did that red moon manage to glide through the darkness, at a man's height, with nothing to support it, at least apparently? And how did it go so fast, so straight ahead, with such staring, staring eyes, and what was that scratching, scraping, grating sound which it brought with it? 
The Persian and Raoul could retreat no farther, and flattened themselves against the wall, not knowing what was going to happen because of that incomprehensible head of fire, and especially now because of the more intense, swarming, living, numerous sound, for the sound was certainly made up of hundreds of little sounds that moved in the darkness under the fiery face. And the fiery face came on, with its noise, came level with them, and the two companions, flat against their wall, felt their hair stand on end with horror, for they now knew what the thousand noises meant. They came in a troop, hustled along in the shadow by innumerable little hurried waves, swifter than the waves that rush over the sands at high tide, little night waves foaming under the moon, under the fiery head that was like a moon, and the little waves passed between their legs, climbing up their legs irresistibly, and Raoul and the Persian could no longer restrain their cries of horror, dismay, and pain, nor could they continue to hold their hands at the level of their eyes. Their hands went down to their legs to push back the waves, which were full of little legs and nails and claws and teeth. Yes, Raoul and the Persian were ready to faint, like Pampin the fireman, but the head of fire turned round in answer to their cries and spoke to them. Don't move, don't move. Whatever you do, don't come after me. I am the rat-catcher. Let me pass with my rat. And the head of fire disappeared, vanished in the darkness, while the passage in front of it lit up as the result of the change which the rat-catcher had made in his dark lantern. Before, so as not to scare the rats in front of him, he had turned his dark lantern on himself, lighting up his own head. Now, to hasten their flight, he lit the dark space in front of him, and he jumped along, dragging with him the waves of scratching rats, all the thousand sounds. Raoul and the Persian breathed again, though still trembling. "'I ought to have remembered that Eric talked to me about the rat-catcher,' said the Persian, "'but he never told me that he looked like that, and it's funny that I should never have met him before.' of course eric never comes to this part are we very far from the lake sir asked raoul when shall we get there take me to the lake oh take me to the lake when we are at the lake we will call out christine will hear us and he will hear us too and as you know we shall talk to him baby said the persian we shall never enter the house on the lake by the lake i myself have never landed on the other bank the bank on which the house stands, you have to cross the lake first, and it is well guarded. I fear that more than one of those men, old scene-shifters, old door-shutters, who have never been seen again, were simply tempted to cross the lake. It is terrible. I myself would have been nearly killed there, if the monster had not recognized me in time. One piece of advice, sir, never go near the lake, and, above all, shut your ears if you hear the voice singing under the water, the siren's voice. "'But then what are we here for?' asked Raoul, in a transport of fever, impatience, and rage. "'If you can do nothing for Christine, at least let me die for her.' The Persian tried to calm the young man. "'We have only one means of saving Christine Day, believe me.' which is to enter the house unperceived by the monster. And is there any hope of that, sir? Ah, if I had not that hope, I would not have come to fetch you. 
and how can one enter the house on the lake without crossing the lake from the third cellar from which we were so unluckily driven away we will go back there now i will tell you said the persian with a sudden change in his voice i will tell you the exact place sir it is between a set piece and a discarded scene from roy de lahore exactly at the spot where joseph bouquet died come sir take courage and follow me and hold your hand at the level of your eyes but where are we the persian lit his lamp again and flung its rays down two enormous corridors that crossed each other at right angles we must be he said in the part used more particularly for the waterworks i see no fire coming from the furnaces he went in front of raoul seeking his road stopping abruptly when he was afraid of meeting some waterman then they had to protect themselves against the glow of a sort of underground forge which the men were extinguishing and at which raoul recognized the demons whom christine had seen at the time of her first captivity in this way they gradually arrived beneath the huge cellars below the stage they must at this time have been at the very bottom of the tub and at an extremely great depth when we remember that the earth was dug out at fifty feet below the water that lay under the whole of that part of paris the persian touched a partition wall and said if i am not mistaken this is a wall that might easily belong to the house on the lake he was striking a partition wall of the tub and perhaps it would be as well for the reader to know how the bottom and the partition walls of the tub were built in order to prevent the water surrounding the building operations from remaining in immediate contact with the walls supporting the whole of the theatrical machinery the architect was obliged to build a double case in every direction the work of constructing this double case took a whole year it was the wall of the first inner case that the persian struck when speaking to raoul of the house on the lake to anyone understanding the architecture of the edifice the persian's action would seem to indicate that eric's mysterious house had been built in the double case formed of a thick wall constructed as an embankment or dam then of a brick wall a tremendous layer of cement and another wall several yards in thickness at the persian's words raoul flung himself against the wall and listened eagerly but he heard nothing nothing except distant steps sounding on the floor of the upper portions of the theatre the persian darkened his lantern again look out he said keep your hand up and silence for we shall try another way of getting in and he led him to the little staircase by which they had come down lately they went up stopping at each step peering into the darkness and the silence till they came to the third cellar here the persian motioned to raoul to go on his knees and in this way crawling on both knees and one hand for the other hand was held in the position indicated they reached the end wall against this wall stood a large discarded scene from the roy de lahore close to this scene was a set piece between the scene and the set piece there was just room for a body for a body which one day was found hanging there the body of joseph bouquet the persian still kneeling stopped and listened for a moment he seemed to hesitate and looked at raoul then he turned his eyes upward toward the second cellar which sent down the faint glimmer of a lantern through a cranny between two boards this glimmer seemed to trouble the persian 
At last he tossed his head and made up his mind to act. He slipped between the set-piece and the scene from the Roy de Lahore, with Raoul close upon his heels. With his free hand the Persian felt the wall. Raoul saw him bear heavily upon the wall, just as he had pressed against the wall in Christine's dressing-room. Then a stone gave way, leaving a hole in the wall. This time the Persian took his pistol from his pocket and made a sign to Raoul to do as he did. He cocked the pistol, and resolutely, still on his knees, he wiggled through the hole in the wall. Raoul, who had wished to pass first, had to be content to follow him. The hole was very narrow. The Persian stopped almost at once. Raoul heard him feeling the stones around him. Then the Persian took out his dark lantern again, stooped forward, examined something beneath him, and immediately extinguished his lantern. Raoul heard him say in a whisper, "'We shall have to drop a few yards without making a noise. Take off your boots.' The Persian handed his own shoes to Raoul. "'Put them outside the wall,' he said. "'We shall find them there when we leave.' He crawled a little farther on his knees, then turned right round and said, "'I am going to hang by my hands from the edge of the stone and let myself drop into his house.' you must do exactly the same do not be afraid i will catch you in my arms raoul soon heard a dull sound evidently produced by the fall of the persian and then dropped down he felt himself clasped in the persian's arms hush said the persian and they stood motionless listening the darkness was thick around them the silence heavy and terrible then the Persian began to make play with the dark lantern again, turning the rays over their heads, looking for the hole through which they had come, and failing to find it, said, Oh, the stone has closed of itself, and the light of the lantern swept down the wall and over the floor. The Persian stooped and picked up something, a sort of cord, which he examined for a second and flung away with horror. The Punjab lasso, he muttered. "'What is it?' asked Raoul. The Persian shivered. "'It might very well be the rope by which the man was hanged, and which was looked for so long.' And suddenly seized with fresh anxiety, he moved the little red disk of his lantern over the walls. In this way he lit up a curious thing, the trunk of a tree which seemed still quite alive with its leaves, and the branches of that tree ran right up the walls and disappeared in the ceiling.' Because of the smallness of the luminous disk it was difficult at first to make out the appearance of things. They saw a corner of a branch, and a leaf, and another leaf, and next to it nothing at all, nothing but the ray of light that seemed to reflect itself. Raoul passed his hand over that nothing, over that reflection. "'Hello,' he said. "'The wall is a looking-glass.' "'Yes, a looking-glass.' said the Persian in a tone of deep emotion, and passing the hand that held the pistol over his moist forehead, he added, We have dropped into the torture chamber. What the Persian knew of this torture chamber, and what there befell him and his companion, shall be told in his own words, as set down in a manuscript which he left behind him, and which I copy verbatim. End of chapter 20 Chapter 21 of The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux. 
Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 21 Interesting and Instructive Vicissitudes of a Persian in the Cellars of the Opera. The Persian's Narrative. It was the first time that I entered the house on the lake. I had often begged the trap-door lover, as we used to call Eric in my country, to open its mysterious doors to me. He always refused. I made very many attempts, but in vain, to obtain admittance. Watch him as I might, after I first learned that he had taken up his permanent abode at the opera, the darkness was always too thick to enable me to see how he worked the door in the wall on the lake. One day, when I thought myself alone, I stepped into the boat and rowed toward that part of the wall through which I had seen Eric disappear. It was then that I came into contact with the siren who guarded the approach and whose charm was very nearly fatal to me. I had no sooner put off from the bank than the silence amid which I floated on the water was disturbed by a sort of whispered singing that hovered all around me. It was half breath, half music. It rose softly from the waters of the lake, and I was surrounded by it through I knew not what artifice. It followed me, moved with me, and was so soft that it did not alarm me. On the contrary, in my longing to approach the source of that sweet and enticing harmony, I leaned out of my little boat over the water, for there was no doubt in my mind that the singing came from the water itself. By this time I was alone in the boat, in the middle of the lake. The voice, for it was now distinctly a voice, was beside me on the water. I leaned over, leaned still farther. The lake was perfectly calm, and a moonbeam that passed through the air-hole in the rue scribe showed me absolutely nothing on its surface which was smooth and black as ink. I shook my ears to get rid of a possible humming, but I soon had to accept the fact that there was no humming in the ears so harmonious as the singing whisper that followed and now attracted me. Had I been inclined to superstition, I should have certainly thought that I had to do with some siren whose business it was to confound the traveller who should venture on the waters of the house on the lake. Fortunately, I come from a country where we are too fond of fantastic things not to know them through and through, and I had no doubt but that I was face to face with some new invention of Eric's. But this invention was so perfect that as I leaned out of the boat I was impelled less by a desire to discover its trick than to enjoy its charm, and I leaned out, leaned out until I almost overturned the boat. Suddenly two monstrous arms issued from the bosom of the waters and seized me by the neck, dragging me down to the depths with irresistible force. I should certainly have been lost if I had not had time to give a cry by which Eric knew me for it was he, and instead of drowning me, as was certainly his first intention, he swam with me and laid me gently on the bank. "'How imprudent you are,' he said, as he stood before me, dripping with water. "'Why try to enter my house? I never invited you. I don't want you there, nor anybody. Did you save my life only to make it unbearable to me?' However great the service you rendered him, Eric may end by forgetting it. 
and you know that nothing can restrain Eric, not even Eric himself. He spoke, but I had now no other wish than to know what I already called the trick of the siren. He satisfied my curiosity, for Eric, who is a real monster, I have seen him at work in Persia, alas, is also in certain respects a regular child, vain and self-conceited, and there is nothing he loves so much, after astonishing people, as to prove all the really miraculous ingenuity of his mind. He laughed and showed me a long reed. It's the silliest trick you ever saw, he said, but it's very useful for breathing and singing in the water. I learned it from the Tonkin pirates, who are able to remain hidden for hours in the beds of the rivers. I spoke to him severely. It's a trick that nearly killed me, I said, and it may have been fatal to others. You know what you promised me, Eric. No more murders. "'Have I really committed murders?' he asked, putting on his most amiable air. "'Wretched man!' I cried. "'Have you forgotten the rosy hours of Mazenderan?' "'Yes,' he replied in a sadder tone. "'I prefer to forget them. I used to make the little sultana laugh, though.' "'All that belongs to the past,' I declared. "'But there is the present.' and you are responsible to me for the present, because if I had wished, there would have been none at all for you. Remember that, Eric. I saved your life. And I took advantage of the turn of conversation to speak to him of something that had long been on my mind. Eric, I asked, Eric, swear that— What? he retorted. You know I never keep my oaths. Oaths are made to catch gulls with. Tell me. You can tell me at any rate. Well? Well, the chandelier. The chandelier, Eric. What about the chandelier? You know what I mean. Oh, he sniggered. I don't mind telling you about the chandelier. It wasn't I. The chandelier was very old and worn. When Eric laughed, he was more terrible than ever. He jumped into the boat, chuckling so horribly that I could not help trembling. Very old and worn, my dear Daroga, very old and worn, the chandelier. It fell of itself. It came down with a smash. And now, Daroga, take my advice and go and dry yourself, or you'll catch a cold in the head and never get into my boat again. And whatever you do, don't try to enter my house. I'm not always there, Daroga, and I should be sorry to have to dedicate my requiem mass to you. So saying, swinging to and fro like a monkey, and still chuckling, he pushed off and soon disappeared in the darkness of the lake. From that day I gave up all thought of penetrating into his house by the lake. That entrance was obviously too well guarded, especially since he had learned that I knew about it. But I felt that there must be another entrance, for I had often seen Eric disappear in the third cellar when I was watching him, though I could not imagine how. Ever since I had discovered Eric installed in the opera, I lived in a perpetual terror of his horrible fancies, 
not in so far as I was concerned, but I dreaded everything for others, and whenever some accident, some fatal event happened, I always thought to myself, I should not be surprised if that were Eric, even as others used to say, it's the ghost. How often have I not heard people utter that phrase with a smile? Poor devils! If they had known that the ghost existed in the flesh, I swear they would not have laughed. Although Eric announced to me very solemnly that he had changed and that he had become the most virtuous of men, since he was loved for himself, a sentence that at first perplexed me most terribly, I could not help shuddering when I thought of the monster. His horrible, unparalleled, and repulsive ugliness put him without the pale of humanity, and it often seemed to me that for this reason he no longer believed that he had any duty toward the human race. The way in which he spoke of his love affairs only increased my alarm, for I foresaw the cause of fresh and more hideous tragedies in this event to which he alluded so boastfully. On the other hand, I soon discovered the curious moral traffic established between the monster and Christine Day, hiding in the lumber-room next to the young prima donna's dressing-room, I listened to wonderful musical displays that evidently flung Christine into marvelous ecstasy, but all the same I would never have thought that Eric's voice, which was loud as thunder or soft as angels' voices, at will, could have made her forget his ugliness. I understood all when I learned that Christine had not yet seen him. I had occasion to go to the dressing-room, and, remembering the lessons he had once given me, I had no difficulty in discovering the trick that made the wall with the mirror swing round, and I ascertained the means of hollow bricks, and so on, by which he made his voice carry to Christine as though she heard it close beside her. In this way also I discovered the road that led to the well and the dungeon, the communist dungeon, and also the trap-door that enabled Eric to go straight to the cellars below the stage. A few days later what was not my amazement to learn by my own eyes and ears that Eric and Christine Day saw each other and to catch the monster stooping over the little well in the communist road and sprinkling the forehead of Christine Day, who had fainted. A white horse, the horse out of the Profeta, which had disappeared from the stables under the opera, was standing quietly beside them. I showed myself. It was terrible. I saw sparks fly from those yellow eyes, and before I had time to say a word I received a blow on the head that stunned me. When I came to myself, Eric, Christine, and the white horse had disappeared. I felt sure that the poor girl was a prisoner in the house on the lake. Without hesitation I resolved to return to the bank, notwithstanding the attendant danger. For twenty-four hours I lay in wait for the monster to appear, for I felt that he must go out driven by the need of obtaining provisions, 
and in this connection i may say that when he went out in the streets or ventured to show himself in public he wore a pasteboard nose with a moustache attached to it instead of his own horrible hole of a nose this did not quite take away his corpse-like air but it made him almost i say almost endurable to look at i therefore watched on the bank of the lake and weary of long waiting was beginning to think that he had gone through the other door the door in the third cellar when i heard a slight splashing in the dark i saw the two yellow eyes shining like candles and soon the boat touched shore eric jumped out and walked up to me you've been here for twenty-four hours he said and you're annoying me i tell you all this will end very badly and you will have brought it upon yourself for i have been extraordinarily patient with you you think you are following me you great booby whereas it's i who am following you and i know all that you know about me here i spared you yesterday in my communist road but i warn you seriously don't let me catch you there again upon my word you don't seem able to take a hint he was so furious that i did not think for the moment of interrupting him after puffing and blowing like a walrus he put his horrible thought into words yes you must learn once and for all once and for all i say to take a hint i tell you that with your recklessness for you have already been twice arrested by the shade in the felt hat who did not know what you were doing in the cellars and took you to the managers who looked upon you as an eccentric persian interested in stage mechanism and life behind the scenes i know all about it i was there in the office you know i am everywhere well i tell you that with your recklessness they will end by wondering what you are after here and they will end by knowing that you are after eric and then they will be after eric themselves and they will discover the house on the lake if they do it will be a bad lookout for you old chap a bad lookout i won't answer for anything again he puffed and blew like a walrus i won't answer for anything if Eric's secrets cease to be Eric's secrets, it will be a bad lookout for a goodly number of the human race. That's all I have to tell you. And unless you are a great booby, it ought to be enough for you, except that you don't know how to take a hint. He had sat down on the stern of his boat and was kicking his heels against the planks, waiting to hear what I had to answer. I simply said, it's not eric that i'm after here who then you know as well as i do it's christine day i answered he retorted i have every right to see her in my own house i am loved for my own sake that's not true i said you have carried her off and are keeping her locked up listen he said will you promise never to meddle with my affairs again if i prove to you that i am loved for my own sake yes i promise you i replied without hesitation for i felt convinced that for such a monster the proof was impossible well then it's quite simple christine day shall leave this as she pleases and come back again yes come back again because she wishes come back of herself 
because she loves me for myself. Oh, I doubt if she will come back, but it is your duty to let her go. My duty, you great booby. It is my wish, my wish to let her go. And she will come back again, for she loves me. All this will end in a marriage, a marriage at the Madeleine, you great booby. Do you believe me now when I tell you that my nuptial mass is written? Wait till you hear the Kiri. He beat time with his heels on the planks of the boat and sang, Kiri, Kiri, Kiri Elison. Wait till you hear, wait till you hear that mass. Look here, I said. I shall believe you if I see Christine Day come out of the house on the lake and go back to it of her own accord. And you won't meddle any more in my affairs? No. Very well, you shall see that to-night. Come to the masked ball. Christine and I will go and have a look around. Then you can hide in the lumber-room, and you shall see Christine, who will have gone to her dressing-room, delighted to come back by the communist's road. And now be off, for I must go and do some shopping. To my intense astonishment, things happened as he had announced. Christine Day left the house on the lake and returned to it several times without apparently being forced to do so. It was very difficult for me to clear my mind of Eric. However, I resolved to be extremely prudent, and did not make the mistake of returning to the shore of the lake or of going by the communist's road. But the idea of the secret entrance in the third cellar haunted me, and I repeatedly went and waited for hours behind a scene from the Roy de Lahore, which had been left there for some reason or other. At last my patience was rewarded. One day I saw the monster come toward me on his knees. I was certain that he could not see me. He passed between the scene behind which I stood and a set-piece, went to the wall and pressed on a spring that moved a stone and afforded him an ingress. He passed through this, and the stone closed behind him. I waited for at least thirty minutes, and then pressed the spring in my turn. Everything happened as with Eric, but I was careful not to go through the hole myself, for I knew that Eric was inside. On the other hand, the idea that I might be caught by Eric suddenly made me think of the death of Joseph Bouquet. I did not wish to jeopardize the advantages of so great a discovery which might be useful to many people to a goodly number of the human race, in Eric's words, and I left the cellars of the opera after carefully replacing the stone. I continued to be greatly interested in the relations between Eric and Christine Day, not from any morbid curiosity, but because of the terrible thought which obsessed my mind that Eric was capable of anything if he once discovered that he was not loved for his own sake as he imagined. I continued to wander very cautiously about the opera, and soon learned the truth about the monster's dreary love affair. He filled Christine's mind through the terror with which he inspired her, but the dear child's heart belonged wholly to the Vicomte Raoul de Chagny. 
while they played about like an innocent engaged couple on the upper floors of the opera to avoid the monster they little suspected that someone was watching over them i was prepared to do anything to kill the monster if necessary and explain to the police afterward but eric did not show himself and i felt none the more comfortable for that i must explain my whole plan i thought that the monster being driven from his house by jealousy would thus enable me to enter it without danger through the passage in the third cellar it was important for everybody's sake that i should know exactly what was inside one day tired of waiting for an opportunity i moved the stone and at once heard an astounding music the monster was working at his don juan triumphant with every door in his house wide open i knew that this was the work of his life i was careful not to stir and remained prudently in my dark hole he stopped playing for a moment and began walking about his place like a madman and he said aloud at the top of his voice it must be finished first quite finished this speech was not calculated to reassure me and when the music recommenced i closed the stone very softly on the day of the abduction of christine day i did not come to the theatre until rather late in the evening trembling lest i should hear bad news i had spent a horrible day for after reading in a morning paper the announcement of a forthcoming marriage between christine and the vicomte de chagny i wondered whether after all i should not do better to denounce the monster but reason returned to me and i was persuaded that this action could only precipitate a possible catastrophe when my cab set me down before the opera i was really almost astonished to see it still standing but i am something of a fatalist like all good orientals and i entered ready for anything christine day's abduction in the prison act which naturally surprised everybody found me prepared i was quite certain that she had been juggled away by eric that prince of conjurers and i thought positively that this was the end of christine and perhaps of everybody so much so that i thought of advising all these people who were staying on at the theatre to make good their escape i felt however that they would be sure to look upon me as mad and i refrained on the other hand i resolved to act without further delay as far as i was concerned the chances were in my favor that eric at that moment was thinking only of his captive this was the moment to enter his house through the third cellar and i resolved to take with me that poor little desperate viscount who at the first suggestion accepted with an amount of confidence in myself that touched me profoundly i had sent my servant for my pistols i gave one to the viscount and advised him to hold himself ready to fire for after all eric might be waiting for us behind the wall we were to go by the communist road and through the trap door seeing my pistols the little viscount asked me if we were going to fight a duel i said yes and what a duel but of course i had no time to explain anything to him 
the little viscount is a brave fellow but he knew hardly anything about his adversary and it was so much the better my great fear was that he was already somewhere near us preparing the punjab lasso no one knows better than he how to throw the punjab lasso for he is the king of stranglers even as he is the prince of conjurers when he had finished making the little sultana laugh at the time of the rosy hours of mazenderan she herself used to ask him to amuse her by giving her a thrill it was then that he introduced the sport of the punjab lasso he had lived in india and acquired an incredible skill in the art of strangulation he would make them lock him into a courtyard to which they brought a warrior usually a man condemned to death armed with a long pike and broadsword eric had only his lasso and it was always just when the warrior thought that he was going to fell eric with a tremendous blow that we heard the lasso whistle through the air with a turn of the wrist eric tightened the noose round his adversary's neck and in this fashion dragged him before the little sultana and her women who sat looking from a window and applauding the little sultana herself learned to wield the punjab lasso and killed several of her women and even of the friends who visited her but i prefer to drop this terrible subject of the rosy hours of mazenderan i have mentioned it only to explain why on arriving with the vicomte de chagny in the cellars of the opera i was bound to protect my companion against the ever-threatening danger of death by strangling my pistols could serve no purpose for eric was not likely to show himself but eric could always strangle us i had no time to explain all this to the viscount besides there was nothing to be gained by complicating the position i simply told monsieur de chagny to keep his hand at the level of his eyes with the arm bent as though waiting for the command to fire with his victim in this attitude it is impossible even for the most expert strangler to throw the lasso with advantage it catches you not only round the neck but also round the arm or hand this enables you easily to unloose the lasso which then becomes harmless after avoiding the commissary of police a number of door-shutters and the firemen after meeting the rat-catcher and passing the man in the felt hat unperceived the viscount and i arrived without obstacle in the third cellar between the set-pieces and the scene from the roy de lahore i worked the stone and we jumped into the house which eric had built himself in the double case of the foundation walls of the opera and this was the easiest thing in the world for him to do because eric was one of the chief contractors under felipe garnier the architect of the opera and continued to work by himself when the works were officially suspended during the war the siege of paris and the commune i knew my eric too well to feel at all comfortable on jumping into his house i knew what he had made of a certain palace at mazaderan from being the most honest building conceivable he soon turned it into a house of the very devil where you could not utter a word but it was overheard or repeated by an echo with his trap-doors the monster was responsible for endless tragedies of all kinds 
he hit upon astonishing inventions. Of these, the most curious, horrible, and dangerous was the so-called torture chamber, except in special cases when the little sultana amused herself by inflicting suffering upon some unoffending citizen. No one was let into it but wretches condemned to death and even then when these had had enough they were always at liberty to put an end to themselves with a punjab lasso or bowstring left for their use at the foot of an iron tree my alarm therefore was great when i saw that the room into which monsieur le vicomte de chagny and i had dropped was an exact copy of the torture chamber of the rosy hours of mazenderan at our feet I found the Punjab lasso, which I had been dreading all the evening. I was convinced that this rope had already done duty for Joseph Bouquet, who, like myself, must have caught Eric one evening working the stone in the third cellar. He probably tried it in his turn, fell into the torture chamber, and only left it hanged. I can well imagine Eric dragging the body, in order to get rid of it, to the scene from the Roy de Lahore, and hanging it there as an example, or to increase the superstitious terror that was to help him in guarding the approaches to his lair. Then, upon reflection, Eric went back to fetch the Punjab lasso, which is very curiously made out of catgut, and which might have set an examining magistrate thinking this explains the disappearance of the rope and now i discovered the lasso at our feet in the torture chamber i am no coward but a cold sweat covered my forehead as i moved my little red disc of my lantern over the walls monsieur de chagny noticed it and asked what is the matter sir i made him a violent sign to be silent End of chapter twenty one Chapter Twenty Two of The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux. Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Two In the Torture Chamber. The Persian's narrative continued. We were in the middle of a little six cornered room, the sides of which were covered with mirrors from top to bottom. In the corners we could clearly see the joins in the glasses, the segments intended to turn on their gear. Yes, I recognized them, and I recognized the iron tree in the corner at the bottom of one of those segments, the iron tree with its iron branch for the hanged men. I seized my companion's arm. The Vicomte de Chagny was all a-quiver, eager to shout to his betrothed that he was bringing her help. I feared that he would not be able to contain himself. Suddenly we heard a noise on our left. It sounded at first like a door opening and shutting in the next room, and then there was a dull moan. I clutched Monsieur de Chagny's arm more firmly still, and then we distinctly heard these words. You must make your choice, the wedding mass or the requiem mass. I recognized the voice of the monster. There was another moan, followed by a long silence. 
I was persuaded by now that the monster was unaware of our presence in his house, for otherwise he would certainly have managed not to let us hear him. He would only have had to close the little invisible window through which the torture lovers looked down into the torture chamber. Besides, I was certain that if he had known of our presence, the tortures would have begun at once. The important thing was not to let him know, and I dreaded nothing so much as the impulsiveness of the Vicomte de Chagny, who wanted to rush through the walls to Christine Day, whose moans we continued to hear at intervals. "'The requiem mass is not at all gay,' Eric's voice resumed, "'whereas the wedding mass, you can take my word for it, is magnificent. You must take a resolution and know your own mind.' I can't go on living like this, like a mole in a burrow. Don Juan triumphant is finished, and now I want to live like everybody else. I want to have a wife like everybody else, and to take her out on Sundays. I have invented a mask that makes me look like anybody. People will not even turn round in the streets. You will be the happiest of women, and we will sing all by ourselves till we swoon away with delight. You are crying. You are afraid of me. And yet I am not really wicked. Love me, and you shall see. All I wanted was to be loved for myself. If you loved me, I should be as gentle as a lamb, and you could do anything with me that you pleased. Soon the moans that accompanied this sort of love's litany increased and increased. I have never heard anything more despairing and Monsieur de Chagny and I recognized that this terrible lamentation came from Eric himself. Christine seemed to be standing dumb with horror, without the strength to cry out, while the monster was on his knees before her. Three times over Eric fiercely bewailed his fate. "'You don't love me! You don't love me! You don't love me!' And then, more gently, why do you cry? You know it gives me pain to see you cry. A silence. Each silence gave us fresh hope. We said to ourselves, perhaps he has left Christine behind the wall, and we thought only of the possibility of warning Christine Day of our presence unknown to the monster. We were unable to leave the torture chamber now unless Christine opened the door to us, and it was only on this condition that we could hope to help her for we did not even know where the door might be. Suddenly the silence in the next room was disturbed by the ringing of an electric bell. There was a bound on the other side of the wall, and Eric's voice of thunder. Somebody ringing! Walk in, please! A sinister chuckle. Who has come bothering now? Wait for me here. I am going to tell the siren to open the door. Steps moved away. A door closed. I had no time to think of the fresh horror that was preparing. I forgot that the monster was only going out, perhaps, to perpetrate a fresh crime. I understood but one thing. Christine was alone behind the wall. The Vicomte de Chagny was already calling to her. Christine! Christine! As we could hear what was said in the next room, there was no reason why my companion should not be heard in his turn. Nevertheless, the Viscount had to repeat his cry time after time. 
At last a faint voice reached us. I am dreaming, it said. Christine, Christine, it is I, Raoul. A silence. But answer me, Christine. In heaven's name, if you are alone, answer me. Then Christine's voice whispered Raoul's name. Yes, yes, it is I. It is not a dream. Christine, trust me. We are here to save you. But be prudent. When you hear the monster, warn us. Then Christine gave way to fear. She trembled lest Eric should discover where Raoul was hidden. She told us in a few hurried words that Eric had gone quite mad with love, and that he had decided to kill everybody and himself with everybody if she did not consent to become his wife. He had given her till eleven o'clock the next evening for reflection. It was the last respite. She must choose, as he said, between the wedding mass and the requiem. And Eric had then uttered a phrase which Christine did not quite understand. Yes or no. If your answer is no, everybody will be dead and buried. But I understood the sentence perfectly, for it corresponded in a terrible manner with my own dreadful thought. Can you tell us where Eric is? I asked. She replied that he must have left the house. Could you make sure? No, I am fastened. I cannot stir a limb. When we heard this, Monsieur de Chagny and I gave a yell of fury. Our safety, the safety of all three of us, depended on the girl's liberty of movement. But where are you? asked Christine. There are only two doors in my room, the Louis-Philippe room of which I told you, Raoul, a door through which Eric comes and goes, and another which he has never opened before me, and which he has forbidden me ever to go through, because, he says, it is the most dangerous of the doors, the door of the torture chamber. Christine, that is where we are. You are in the torture chamber? Yes, but we cannot see the door. Oh, if I could only drag myself so far, I would knock at the door, and that would tell you where it is. Is it a door with a lock to it? I asked. Yes, with a lock. Mademoiselle, I said, it is absolutely necessary that you should open that door to us. But how? asked the poor girl tearfully. We heard her straining, trying to free herself from the bonds that held her. I know where the key is she said in a voice that seemed exhausted by the effort she had made but i am fastened so tight oh the wretch and she gave a sob where is the key i asked signing to monsieur de chagny not to speak and to leave the business to me for we had not a moment to lose in the next room near the organ with another little bronze key which he also forbade me to touch they are both in a little leather bag which he calls the bag of life and death. Raoul, Raoul, fly! Everything is mysterious and terrible here, and Eric will soon have gone quite mad, and you are in the torture chamber. Go back by the way you came. There must be a reason why the room is called by that name. Christine, said the young man, we will go from here together or die together. We must keep cool, I whispered. Why has he fastened you, mademoiselle? You can't escape from his house, and he knows it. 
I tried to commit suicide. The monster went out last night, after carrying me here, fainting and half-chloroformed. He was going to his banker, so he said. When he returned, he found me with my face covered with blood. I had tried to kill myself by striking my forehead against the walls. Christine, groaned Raoul, and he began to sob. Then he bound me. I am not allowed to die until eleven o'clock, to-morrow evening. Mademoiselle, I declared, the monster bound you, and he shall unbind you. You have only to play the necessary part. Remember that he loves you. Alas, we heard, am I likely to forget it? Remember it and smile to him. Entreat him. Tell him that your bonds hurt you. But Christine Day said, Hush, I hear something in the wall on the lake. It is he. Go away, go away, go away. We could not go away even if we wanted to, I said as impressively as I could. We cannot leave this, and we are in the torture chamber. Hush, whispered Christine again. Heavy steps sounded slowly behind the wall, then stopped and made the floor creak once more. Next came a tremendous sigh, followed by a cry of horror from Christine, and we heard Eric's voice. I beg your pardon for letting you see a face like this. What a state I am in, am I not? It's the other one's fault. Why did he ring? Do I ask people who pass to tell me the time? He will never ask anybody the time again. It is the siren's fault." Another sigh, deeper, more tremendous still, came from the abysmal depths of a soul. "'Why did you cry out, Christine?' "'Because I am in pain, Eric.' "'I thought I had frightened you. Eric, unloose my bonds. Am I not your prisoner?' You will try to kill yourself again. You have given me till eleven o'clock tomorrow evening, Eric. The footsteps dragged along the floor again. After all, as we are to die together, and I am just as eager as you, yes, I have had enough of this life, you know. Wait, don't move. I will release you. You have only one word to say. No. And it will at once be over with everybody. You are right, you are right. Why wait till eleven o'clock tomorrow evening? True, it would have been grander, finer. But that is childish nonsense. We should only think of ourselves in this life, of our own death. The rest doesn't matter. You're looking at me because I am all wet? Oh, my dear, it's raining cats and dogs outside. Apart from that, Christine, I think I am subject to hallucinations. You know, the man who rang at the siren's door just now. Go and look if he's ringing at the bottom of the lake well. He was rather like, there, turn round. Are you glad? You're free now. Oh, my poor Christine, look at your wrists. Tell me, have I hurt them? That alone deserves death. Talking of death, I must sing his requiem. Hearing these terrible remarks, I received an awful presentiment. I, too, had once rung at the monster's door, and without knowing it must have set some warning current in motion, and I remembered the two arms that had emerged from the inky waters. What poor wretch had strayed to that shore this time? Who was the other one? 
the one whose requiem we now heard sung. Eric sang like the god of thunder, sang a dies irae that enveloped us as in a storm. The elements seemed to rage around us. Suddenly the organ and the voice ceased, so suddenly that Monsieur de Chagny sprang back on the other side of the wall with emotion. And the voice, changed and transformed, distinctly grated out these metallic syllables. What have you done with my bag? End of chapter 22「we heard hurried steps, Christine running back to the Louis-Philippe room as though to seek shelter on the other side of our wall. "'What are you running away for?' asked the furious voice which had followed her. "'Give me back my bag, will you? Don't you know that it is the bag of life and death?' "'Listen to me, Eric,' sighed the girl. "'As it is settled that we are to live together, what difference can it make to you?' you know there are only two keys in it said the monster what do you want to do i want to look at this room which i have never seen and which you have always kept from me it's woman's curiosity she said in a tone which she tried to render playful but the trick was too childish for eric to be taken in by it i don't like curious women he retorted and you had better remember the story of bluebeard and be careful come give me back my bag give me back my bag leave the key alone will you you inquisitive little thing and he chuckled while christine gave a cry of pain eric had evidently recovered the bag from her at that moment the viscount could not help uttering an exclamation of impotent rage why what's that said the monster did you hear christine no no replied the poor girl I heard nothing. I thought I heard a cry. A cry? Are you going mad, Eric? Whom do you expect to give a cry in this house? I cried out because you hurt me. I heard nothing. I don't like the way you said that. You're trembling. You're quite excited. You're lying. That was a cry. There was a cry. There is someone in the torture chamber. Ah, I understand now. There is no one there, Eric. I understand. No one. The man you want to marry, perhaps. I don't want to marry anybody. You know I don't. Another nasty chuckle. Well, it won't take long to find out. Christine, my love, we need not open the door to see what is happening in the torture chamber. Would you like to see? Look here. If there is someone, if there is really someone there, you will see the invisible window light up at the top, near the ceiling. We need only draw the black curtain and put out the light in here. There, that's it. Let's put out the light. You're not afraid of the dark when you're with your little husband. Then we heard Christine's voice of anguish. No, 
I'm frightened. I tell you, I'm afraid of the dark. I don't care about that room now. You're always frightening me, like a child with your torture chamber. And so I became inquisitive. But I don't care about it now. Not a bit. Not a bit. And that which I feared above all things began automatically. We were suddenly flooded with light. Yes, on our side of the wall everything seemed aglow. The Vicomte de Chagny was so much taken aback that he staggered, and the angry voice roared. I told you there was someone. Do you see the window now, the lighted window right up there? The man behind the wall can't see it, but you shall go up the folding steps. That is what they are there for. You have often asked me to tell you, and now you know. They are there to give a peep into the torture chamber. You inquisitive little thing. What tortures? Who is being tortured? Eric, Eric, say you are only trying to frighten me. Say it if you love me, Eric. There are no tortures, are there? Go and look at the little window, dear. I do not know if the Viscount heard the girl's swooning voice, for he was too much occupied by the astounding spectacle that now appeared before his distracted gaze. As for me, I had seen that sight too often, through the little window, at the time of the rosy hours of Mazenderan, and I cared only for what was being said next door, seeking for a hint how to act, what resolution to take. Go and peep through the little window. Tell me what he looks like. We heard the steps being dragged against the wall. Up with you. No, no, I will go up myself, dear. Oh, very well, I will go up. Let me go. Oh, my darling, my darling, how sweet of you. How nice of you to save me the exertion at my age. Tell me what he looks like. At that moment we distinctly heard these words above our heads. There is no one there, dear. No one? Are you sure there is no one? Why, of course not. No one. Well, that's all right. What's the matter, Christine? You're not going to faint, are you, as there is no one there? Here, come down. There, pull yourself together, as there is no one there. But how do you like the landscape? Oh, very much. There, that's better. You're better now, are you not? That's all right, you're better. No excitement. And what a funny house, isn't it? with landscapes like that in it. Yes, it's like the Massey Greven. But, say, Eric, there are no tortures in there. What a fright you gave me. Why, as there is no one there. Did you design that room? It's very handsome. You're a great artist, Eric. Yes, a great artist in my own line. But tell me, Eric, why did you call that room the torture chamber? Oh, it's very simple. First of all, what did you see? I saw a forest. And what is in a forest? Trees. And what is in a tree? Birds. Did you see any birds? No, I did not see any birds. Well, what did you see? Think. You saw branches, and what are the branches? asked the terrible voice. There's a gibbet. That is why I call my wood the torture chamber. You see, it's all a joke. I never express myself like other people, 
but I am very tired of it. I am sick and tired of having a forest and a torture-chamber in my house, and of living like a mountebank in a house with a false bottom. I'm tired of it. I want to have a nice, quiet flat, with ordinary doors and windows, and a wife inside it, like everybody else, a wife whom I could love and take out on Sundays and keep amused on weekdays. Here, shall I show you some card tricks? That will help us to pass a few minutes while waiting for eleven o'clock tomorrow evening. My dear little Christine, are you listening to me? Tell me you love me. No, you don't love me. But no matter, you will. Once you could not look at my mask because you knew what was behind, and now you don't mind looking at it, you forget what is behind. One can get used to everything, if one wishes. Plenty of young people who did not care for each other before marriage have adored each other since. Oh, I don't know what I'm talking about, but you would have lots of fun with me. For instance, I am the greatest ventriloquist that ever lived. I am the first ventriloquist in the world. You're laughing. Perhaps you don't believe me. Listen. The wretch, who really was the first ventriloquist in the world, was only trying to divert the child's attention from the torture chamber. But it was a stupid scheme, for Christine thought of nothing but us. She repeatedly besought him in the gentlest tones which she could assume. Put out the light in the little window. Eric, do put out the light in the little window. For she saw that this light, which appeared so suddenly, and of which the monster had spoken in so threatening a voice, must mean something terrible. One thing must have pacified her for a moment, and that was seeing the two of us behind the wall, in the midst of that resplendent light, alive and well. But she would certainly have felt much easier if the light had been put out. Meantime the other had already begun to play the ventriloquist. He said, Here, I raise my mask a little. Oh, only a little. You see my lips, such lips as I have. They're not moving. My mouth is closed, such mouth as I have, and yet you hear my voice. Where will you have it? In your left ear? In your right ear? In the table? In those little ebony boxes on the mantelpiece? Listen, dear, it's in the little box on the right of the mantelpiece. What does it say? Shall I turn the scorpion? And now, crack, what does it say in the little box on the left? Shall I turn the grasshopper? And now, crack, here it is in the little leather bag. What does it say? I am the little bag of life and death. And now, crack, it is in Carlotta's throat, in Carlotta's golden throat, in Carlotta's crystal throat as I live. What does it say? It says, It's I, Mr. Toad, it's I singing. I feel without alarm, coax with its melody enwind me, coack, and now crack, it is on a chair in the ghost box, and it says, Madame Carlotta is singing to-night to bring the chandelier down, and now crack, aha, where is Eric's voice now? Listen, Christine, darling, listen, it is behind the door of the torture-chamber, listen, it's myself in the torture-chamber, 
and what do i say i say woe to them that have a nose a real nose and come to look around the torture chamber <laughs> oh the ventriloquist's terrible voice it was everywhere everywhere it passed through the little invisible window through the walls it ran around us between us eric was there speaking to us we made a movement as though to fling ourselves upon him but already swifter more fleeting than the voice of the echo eric's voice had leaped back behind the wall soon we heard nothing more at all for this is what happened eric eric said christine's voice you tire me with your voice don't go on eric isn't it very hot here oh yes replied eric's voice the heat is unendurable but what does this mean the wall is really getting quite hot the wall is burning i'll tell you christine dear it is because of the forest next door well what has that to do with it the forest why didn't you see that it was an african forest oh, <laughs> <laughs> and the monster laughed so loudly and hideously that we could no longer distinguish Christine's supplicating cries. The Vicomte de Chagny shouted and banged against the walls like a madman. I could not restrain him, but we heard nothing except the monster's laughter, and the monster himself can have heard nothing else and then there was the sound of a body falling on the floor and being dragged along and the door slammed and then nothing nothing more around us save the scorching silence of the south in the heart of a tropical forest end of chapter twenty three chapter twenty four of the phantom of the opera by gaston Leroux. Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 24 Barrels, Barrels, Any Barrels to Sell. The Persian's Narrative Continued. I have said that the room in which Monsieur le Vicomte de Chagny and I were imprisoned was a regular hexagon, lined entirely with mirrors. Plenty of these rooms have been seen since, mainly at exhibitions. They are called palaces of illusion, or some such name. But the invention belongs entirely to Eric, who built the first room of this kind under my eyes at the time of the rosy hours of Mazenderan. A decorative object, such as a column, for instance, was placed in one of the corners, and immediately produced a hall of a thousand columns, for thanks to the mirrors, the real room was multiplied by six hexagonal rooms, each of which in its turn was multiplied indefinitely. But the little sultana soon tired of this infantile illusion, whereupon Eric altered his invention into a torture chamber. For the architectural motif placed in one corner, he substituted an iron tree. This tree, with its painted leaves, was absolutely true to life, and was made of iron so as to resist all the attacks of the patient who was locked into the torture chamber. We shall see how the scene thus obtained was twice altered instantaneously into two successive other scenes by means of the automatic rotation of the drums or rollers in the corners. These were divided into three sections, fitting into the angles of the mirrors, 
and each supporting a decorative scheme that came into sight as the roller revolved upon its axis. The walls of this strange room gave the patient nothing to lay hold of, because, apart from the solid decorative object, they were simply furnished with mirrors thick enough to withstand any onslaught of the victim who was flung into the chamber empty-handed and barefoot. There was no furniture. The ceiling was capable of being lit up. An ingenious system of electric heating, which has since been imitated, allowed the temperature of the walls and room to be increased at will. I am giving all these details of a perfectly natural invention, producing, with a few painted branches, the supernatural illusion of an equatorial forest blazing under the tropical sun, so that no one may doubt the present balance of my brain, or feel entitled to say that I am mad, or lying, or that I take him for a fool. I now return to the facts where I left them. When the ceiling lit up and the forest became visible round us, the Viscount's stupefaction was immense. That impenetrable forest, with its innumerable trunks and branches, threw him into a terrible state of consternation. He passed his hands over his forehead, as though to drive away a dream. His eyes blinked, and for a moment he forgot to listen. I have already said that the sight of the forest did not surprise me at all, and therefore I listened for the two of us to what was happening next door. Lastly, my attention was especially attracted not so much to the scene as to the mirrors that produced it. These mirrors were broken in parts. Yes, they were marked and scratched. They had been starred in spite of their solidity, and thus proved to me that the torture chamber in which we now were had already served a purpose. Yes, some wretch, whose feet were not bare like those of the victims of the rosy hours of Mazenderan, had certainly fallen into this mortal illusion, and mad with rage had kicked against those mirrors, which nevertheless continued to reflect his agony and the branch of the tree on which he had put an end to his own sufferings was arranged in such a way that before dying he had seen for his last consolation a thousand men writhing in his company. Yes, Joseph Bouquet had undoubtedly been through all this. Were we to die as he had done? I did not think so, for I knew that we had a few hours before us, and that I could employ them to better purpose than Joseph Bouquet was able to do. After all, I was thoroughly acquainted with most of Eric's tricks, and now or never was the time to turn my knowledge to account. To begin with, I gave up every idea of returning to the passage that had brought us to that accursed chamber. I did not trouble about the possibility of working the inside stone that closed the passage, and this for the simple reason that to do so was out of the question. We had dropped from too great a height into the torture chamber. There was no furniture to help us reach that passage, not even the branch of the iron tree, not even each other's shoulders were of any avail. There was only one possible outlet, that opening into the Louis-Philippe room in which Eric and Christine Day were. But though this outlet looked like an ordinary door on Christine's side, it was absolutely invisible to us. We must therefore try to open it without even knowing where it was. When I was quite sure that there was no hope for us from Christine Day's side, when I had heard the monster dragging the poor girl from the Louis-Philippe room, 
lest she should interfere with our tortures, I resolved to set to work without delay. But I had first to calm Monsieur de Chagny, who was already walking about like a madman, uttering incoherent cries. The snatches of conversation which he had caught between Christine and the monster had contributed not a little to drive him beside himself. Add to that the shock of the magic forest, and the scorching heat which was beginning to make the perspiration stream down his temples, and you will have no difficulty in understanding his state of mind. He shouted Christine's name, brandished his pistol, knocked his forehead against the glass in his endeavors to run down the glades of the elusive forest. In short, the torture was beginning to work its spell upon a brain unprepared for it. I did my best to induce the poor Viscount to listen to reason. I made him touch the mirrors and the iron tree and the branches, and explained to him by optical laws all the luminous imagery by which we were surrounded, and of which we need not allow ourselves to be the victims, like ordinary ignorant people. We are in a room, a little room, that is what you must keep saying to yourself, and we shall leave the room as soon as we have found the door and I promised him that if he let me act without disturbing me by shouting and walking up and down, I would discover the trick of the door in less than an hour's time. Then he lay flat on the floor, as one does in a wood, and declared that he would wait until I found the door of the forest, as there was nothing better to do, and he added that from where he was, the view was splendid. The torture was working, in spite of all that I had said. Myself, forgetting the forest, I tackled a glass panel, and began to finger it in every direction, hunting for the weak point on which to press, in order to turn the door in accordance with Eric's system of pivots. This weak point might be a mere speck on the glass, no larger than a pea, under which the spring lay hidden. I hunted and hunted. I felt as high as my hands could reach. Eric was about the same height as myself, and I thought that he would not have placed the spring higher than suited his stature. While groping over the successive panels with the greatest care, I endeavored not to lose a minute, for I was feeling more and more overcome with the heat, and we were literally roasting in that blazing forest. I had been working like this for half an hour, and had finished three panels, when, as ill luck would have it, I turned round on hearing a muttered exclamation from the Viscount. "'I'm stifling,' he said. "'All those mirrors are sending out an infernal heat. Do you think you will find that spring soon? If you are much longer about it, we shall be roasted alive.' I was not sorry to hear him talk like this. He had not said a word of the forest, and I hoped that my companion's reason would hold out some time longer against the torture. But, he added, what consoles me is that the monster has given Christine until eleven tomorrow evening. If we can't get out of here and go to her assistance, at least we shall be dead before her. Then Eric's mask can serve for all of us. And he gulped down a breath of hot air that nearly made him faint. As I had not the same desperate reasons as Monsieur le Vicomte for accepting death, I returned, after giving him a word of encouragement, to my panel, but I had made the mistake of taking a few steps while speaking, and in the tangle of the elusive forest I was no longer able to find my panel for certain. I had to begin all over again at random, feeling, fumbling, groping. 
Now the fever laid hold of me in my turn, for I found nothing, absolutely nothing. In the next room all was silence. We were quite lost in the forest, without an outlet, a compass, a guide, or anything. Oh, I knew what awaited us if nobody came to our aid, or if I did not find the spring, but look as I might, I found nothing but branches, beautiful branches that stood straight up before me, or spread gracefully over my head, but they gave no shade, and this was natural enough, as we were in an equatorial forest with the sun right above our heads, an African forest. Monsieur de Chagny and I had repeatedly taken off our coats and put them on again, finding at one time that they made us feel still hotter, and at another that they protected us against the heat. I was still making a moral resistance, but Monsieur de Chagny seemed to me quite gone. He pretended that he had been walking in that forest for three days and nights, without stopping, looking for Christine Day. From time to time he thought he saw her behind the trunk of a tree, or gliding between the branches, and he called to her with words of supplication that brought the tears to my eyes. And then, at last, "'Oh, how thirsty I am!' he cried in delirious accents. I, too, was thirsty. My throat was on fire. And yet, squatting on the floor, I went on hunting, hunting, hunting for the spring of the invisible door, especially as it was dangerous to remain in the forest as evening drew nigh. Already the shades of night were beginning to surround us. It had happened very quickly. Night falls quickly in tropical countries, suddenly, with hardly any twilight. Now night, in the forests of the equator, is always dangerous, particularly when, like ourselves, one has not the materials for a fire to keep off the beasts of prey. I did indeed try for a moment to break off the branches, which I would have lit with my dark lantern, but I knocked myself also against the mirrors and remembered in time that we had only images of branches to do with. The heat did not go with the daylight. On the contrary, it was now still hotter under the blue rays of the moon. I urged the Viscount to hold our weapons ready to fire and not to stray from camp, while I went on looking for my spring. Suddenly we heard a lion roaring a few yards away. Oh, whispered the Viscount, he is quite close. Don't you see him? There, through the trees, in that thicket. If he roars again, I will fire and the roaring began again, louder than before, and the Viscount fired, but I do not think that he hit the lion, only he smashed a mirror, as I perceived the next morning at daybreak. We must have covered a good distance during the night, for we suddenly found ourselves on the edge of the desert, an immense desert of sand, stones, and rocks. It was really not worth while leaving the forest to come upon the desert, Tired out, I flung myself down beside the Viscount, for I had had enough of looking for springs which I could not find. I was quite surprised, and I said so to the Viscount, that we had encountered no other dangerous animals during the night. Usually, after the lion came, the leopard, and sometimes the buzz of the tsetse fly. These were easily obtained effects, and I explained to Monsieur de Chagny, that Eric imitated the roar of a lion on a long tabor, 
or timbrel with an ass's skin at one end over this skin he tied a string of catgut which was fastened at the middle to another similar string passing through the whole length of the tabor eric had only to rub this string with a glove smeared with resin and according to the manner in which he rubbed it he imitated to perfection the voice of the lion or the leopard or even the buzzing of the tsetse fly the idea that eric was probably in the room beside us working his trick made me suddenly resolve to enter into a parley with him for we must obviously give up all thought of taking him by surprise and by this time he must be quite aware who were the occupants of his torture chamber i called him eric eric i shouted as loudly as i could across the desert but there was no answer to my voice all around us lay the silence and the bare immensity of that stony desert what was to become of us in the midst of that awful solitude we were beginning literally to die of heat hunger and thirst of thirst especially at last i saw monsieur de chagny raise himself on his elbow and point to a spot on the horizon he had discovered an oasis yes far in the distance was an oasis an oasis with limpid water which reflected the iron trees tush it was the scene of the mirage i recognized it at once the worst of the three no one had been able to fight against it no one i did my utmost to keep my head and not to hope for water because i knew that if a man hoped for water the water that reflected the iron tree and if after hoping for water he struck against the mirror then there was only one thing for him to do to hang himself on the iron tree so i cried to monsieur de chagny it's the mirage it's the mirage don't believe in the water it's another trick of the mirrors then he flatly told me to shut up with my tricks of the mirrors my springs my revolving doors and my palaces of illusions he angrily declared that i must be either blind or mad to imagine that all that water flowing over there among those splendid numberless trees was not real water and the desert was real and so was the forest and it was no use trying to take him in he was an old experienced traveller he had been all over the place and he dragged himself along saying water water and his mouth was open as though he were drinking and my mouth was open too as though i were drinking for we not only saw the water but we heard it we heard it flow we heard it ripple do you understand that word ripple it is a sound which you hear with your tongue you put your tongue out of your mouth to listen to it better lastly and this was the most pitiless torture of all we heard the rain and it was not raining this was an infernal invention oh i knew well enough how eric obtained it he filled with little stones a very long and narrow box broken up inside with wooden and metal projections the stones in falling struck against these projections and rebounded from one to another and the result was a series of pattering sounds that exactly imitated a rainstorm ah you should have seen us putting out our tongues and dragging ourselves toward the rippling river-bank our eyes and ears were full of water but our tongues were hard and dry as horn when we reached the mirror monsieur de chagny licked it and i also licked the glass it was burning hot 
Then we rolled on the floor with a hoarse cry of despair. Monsieur de Chagny put the one pistol that was still loaded to his temple, and I stared at the Punjab lasso at the foot of the iron tree. I knew why the iron tree had returned in this third change of scene. The iron tree was waiting for me. But as I stared at the Punjab lasso, I saw a thing that made me start so violently that Monsieur de Chagny delayed his attempt at suicide. I took his arm, and then I caught the pistol from him, and then I dragged myself on my knees toward what I had seen. I had discovered near the Punjab lasso, in a groove in the floor, a black-headed nail of which I knew the use. At last I had discovered the spring. I felt the nail. I lifted a radiant face to Monsieur de Chagny. The black-headed nail yielded to my pressure. And then, and then we saw not a door opened in the wall, but a cellar flap released in the floor. Cool air came up to us from the black hole below. We stooped over that square of darkness as though over a limpid well. With our chins in the cool shade we drank it in and we bent lower and lower over the trap-door. What could there be in that cellar which opened before us? Water? Water to drink? I thrust my arm into the darkness and came upon a stone and another stone, a staircase, a dark staircase leading into the cellar. The Viscount wanted to fling himself down the hole, but I, fearing a new trick of the monsters, stopped him turned on my dark lantern and went down first. The staircase was a winding one and led down into pitchy darkness. But oh, how deliciously cool were the darkness and the stairs. The lake could not be far away. We soon reached the bottom. Our eyes were beginning to accustom themselves to the dark, to distinguish shapes around us, circular shapes, on which I turned the light of my lantern. Barrels! We were in Eric's cellar. It was here that he must keep his wine and perhaps his drinking water. I knew that Eric was a great lover of good wine. Ah, there was plenty to drink here. Monsieur de Chagny patted the round shapes and kept on saying, Barrels! Barrels! What a lot of barrels! Indeed, there was quite a number of them, symmetrically arranged in two rows, one on either side of us. They were small barrels, and I thought that Eric must have selected them of that size to facilitate their carriage to the house on the lake. We examined them successively to see if one of them had not a funnel, showing that it had been tapped at some time or another, but all the barrels were hermetically closed. Then, after half-lifting one to make sure it was full, we went on our knees, and with the blade of a small knife which I carried, I prepared to stave in the bunghole. At that moment I seemed to hear, coming from very far, a sort of monotonous chant which I knew well from often hearing it in the streets of Paris. Barrels! Barrels! Any barrels to sell? My hand desisted from its work. Monsieur de Chagny had also heard. He said, That's funny. It sounds as if the barrel were singing. The song was renewed farther away. Barrels, barrels, any barrels to sell? Oh, I swear, said the Viscount, that the tune dies away in the barrel. We stood up and went to look behind the barrel. It's inside, said Monsieur de Chagny. It's inside. 
but we heard nothing there and were driven to accuse the bad condition of our senses and we returned to the bunghole monsieur de chagny put his two hands together underneath it and with a last effort i burst the bung what's this cried the viscount this isn't water the viscount put his two full hands close to my lantern i stooped to look and at once threw away the lantern with such violence that it broke and went out leaving us in utter darkness what i had seen in monsieur de chagny's hands was gunpowder End of chapter 24Chapter 25 of The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux. Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 25 The Scorpion or the Grasshopper, which The Persian's Narrative Concluded. The discovery flung us into a state of alarm that made us forget all our past and present sufferings we now knew all that the monster meant to convey when he said to christine day yes or no if your answer is no everybody will be dead and buried yes buried under the ruins of the paris grand opera the monster had given her until eleven o'clock in the evening he had chosen his time well there would be many people many members of the human race up there in the resplendent theatre what finer retinue could be expected for his funeral? He would go down to the tomb escorted by the whitest shoulders in the world, decked with the richest jewels. Eleven o'clock to-morrow evening. We were all to be blown up in the middle of the performance, if Christine Day said no. Eleven o'clock to-morrow evening. And what else could Christine say but no? Would she not prefer to espouse death itself rather than that living corpse? She did not know that on her acceptance or refusal depended the awful fate of many members of the human race. Eleven o'clock, tomorrow evening, and we dragged ourselves through the darkness, feeling our way to the stone steps, for the light in the trap-door overhead that led to the room of mirrors was now extinguished and we repeated to ourselves, Eleven o'clock to-morrow evening. At last I found the staircase, but suddenly I drew myself up on the first step, for a terrible thought had come to my mind. What is the time? Ah, what was the time? For, after all, eleven o'clock to-morrow evening might be now, might be this very moment. Who could tell us the time? We seem to have been imprisoned in that hell for days and days, for years, since the beginning of the world. Perhaps we should be blown up then and there. Ah, a sound, a crack. Did you hear that? There, in the corner. Good heavens, like a sound of machinery. Again. Oh, for a light. Perhaps it's the machinery that is to blow everything up. I tell you a cracking sound. Are you deaf? Monsieur de Chagny and I began to yell like madmen. Fear spurred us on. We rushed up the treads of the staircase, stumbling as we went, anything to escape the dark, to return to the mortal light of the room of mirrors. We found the trap-door still open, but it was now as dark in the room of mirrors as in the cellar which we had left. We dragged ourselves along the floor of the torture-chamber 
the floor that separated us from the powder magazine. What was the time? We shouted, we called, Monsieur de Chagny to Christine, I to Eric. I reminded him that I had saved his life, but no answer, save that of our despair, of our madness. What was the time? We argued, we tried to calculate the time which we had spent there, but we were incapable of reasoning. If only we could see the face of a watch! Mine had stopped, but Monsieur de Chagny's was still going. He told me that he had wound it up before dressing for the opera. We had not a match upon us, and yet we must know. Monsieur de Chagny broke the glass of his watch and felt the two hands. He questioned the hands of the watch with his fingertips, going by the position of the ring of the watch. Judging by the space between the hands, he thought it might be just eleven o'clock. But perhaps it was not the eleven o'clock of which we stood in dread. Perhaps we had still twelve hours before us. Suddenly I exclaimed, Hush! I seemed to hear footsteps in the next room. Someone tapped against the wall. Christine Day's voice said, Raoul! Raoul! We were now all talking at once, on either side of the wall. Christine sobbed. She was not sure that she would find Monsieur de Chagny alive. The monster had been terrible, it seemed, had done nothing but rave, waiting for her to give him the yes which she refused. And yet she had promised him that yes, if he would take her to the torture chamber. But he had obstinately declined, and had uttered hideous threats against all the members of the human race. At last, after hours and hours of that hell, he had that moment gone out, leaving her alone to reflect for the last time. Hours, hours, what is the time now? What is the time, Christine? It is eleven o'clock, eleven o'clock, all but five minutes. But which eleven o'clock? The eleven o'clock that is to decide life or death. He told me so just before he went. He is terrible. He is quite mad. He tore off his mask, and his yellow eyes shot flames. He did nothing but laugh. He said, I give you five minutes to spare your blushes. Here, he said, taking a key from the little bag of life and death, here is the little bronze key that opens the two ebony caskets on the mantelpiece in the Louis Philippe room. In one of the caskets you will find a scorpion, in the other a grasshopper, both very cleverly imitated in Japanese bronze. They will say yes or no for you. If you turn the scorpion round, that will mean to me, when I return, that you have said yes. The grasshopper will mean no. And he laughed like a drunken demon. I did nothing but beg and entreat him to give me the key of the torture chamber, promising to be his wife if he granted me that request. But he told me that there was no future need for that key, and that he was going to throw it into the lake, and he again laughed like a drunken demon and left me. Oh, his last words were, The grasshopper, be careful of the grasshopper. A grasshopper does not only turn, it hops, it hops, and it hops jolly high. The five minutes had nearly elapsed, and the scorpion and the grasshopper were scratching at my brain, 
nevertheless i had sufficient lucidity left to understand that if the grasshopper were turned it would hop and with it many members of the human race there was no doubt but that the grasshopper controlled an electric current intended to blow up the powder magazine Monsieur de Chagny, who seemed to have recovered all his moral force from hearing Christine's voice, explained to her in a few hurried words the situation in which we and all the opera were. He told her to turn the scorpion at once. There was a pause. "'Christine!' I cried. "'Where are you?' "'By the scorpion!' "'Don't touch it!' The idea had come to me, for I knew my Eric that the monster had perhaps deceived the girl once more. Perhaps it was the scorpion that would blow everything up. After all, why wasn't he there? The five minutes were long past, and he was not back. Perhaps he had taken shelter, and was waiting for the explosion. Why had he not returned? He could not really expect Christine ever to consent to become his voluntary prey. Why had he not returned? "'Don't touch the scorpion,' I said. "'Here he comes,' cried Christine. "'I hear him. Here he is.' We heard his steps approaching the Louis-Philippe room. He came up to Christine, but did not speak. Then I raised my voice. "'Eric, it is I. Do you know me?' With extraordinary calmness he at once replied, "'So you are not dead in there. Well, then, see that you keep quiet.' I tried to speak, but he said coldly, Not a word, Daroga, or I shall blow everything up. And he added, The honor rests with Mamselle. Mamselle has not touched the scorpion. How deliberately he spoke. Mamselle has not touched the grasshopper with that composure. But it is not too late to do the right thing. There, I open the caskets without a key, for I am a trap-door lover, and I open and shut what I please and as I please. I open the little ebony caskets. Mamselle, look at the little dears inside. Aren't they pretty? If you turn the grasshopper, Mamselle, we shall all be blown up. There is enough gunpowder under our feet to blow up a whole quarter of Paris. If you turn the scorpion, Mamselle, all that powder will be soaked and drowned. Mamselle, to celebrate our wedding you shall make a very handsome present to a few hundred Parisians who are at this moment applauding a poor masterpiece of Meyerbeer's. You shall make them a present of their lives, for with your own fair hands you shall turn the scorpion, and merrily, merrily, we will be married. A pause, and then, if in two minutes, mademoiselle, you have not turned the scorpion, I shall turn the grasshopper, and the grasshopper, I tell you, hops jolly high. The terrible silence began anew. The Vicomte de Chagny, realizing that there was nothing left to do but pray, went down on his knees and prayed. As for me, my blood beat so fiercely that I had to take my heart in both hands lest it should burst. At last we heard Eric's voice. The two minutes are past. Good-bye, mademoiselle. Hop, grasshopper. Eric, cried Christine, do you swear to me, monster? Do you swear to me that the scorpion is the one to turn? 
yes to hop at our wedding ah oh, you see you said to hop at our wedding ingenuous child the scorpion opens the ball but that will do you won't have the scorpion then i turn the grasshopper eric enough i was crying out in concert with christine monsieur de chagny was still on his knees praying eric i have turned the scorpion oh the second through which we passed waiting waiting to find ourselves in fragments amid the roar and the ruins feeling something crack beneath our feet hearing an appalling hiss through the open trap-door a hiss like the first sound of a rocket it came softly at first then louder then very loud but it was not the hiss of fire it was more like the hiss of water and now it became a gurgling sound guggle guggle we rushed to the trap-door all our thirst which vanished when the terror came now returned with the lapping of the water the water rose in the cellar above the barrels the powder barrels 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 any barrels to sell and we went down to it with parched throats it rose to our chins to our mouths and we drank we stood on the floor of the cellar and drank and we went up the stairs again in the dark step by step went up with the water the water came out of the cellar with us and spread over the floor of the room if this went on the whole house on the lake would be swamped the floor of the torture chamber had itself become a regular little lake in which our feet splashed surely there was water enough now eric must turn off the tap eric eric that is water enough for the gunpowder turn off the tap turn off the scorpion but eric did not reply we heard nothing but the water rising it was halfway to our waists christine cried monsieur de chagny christine the water is up to our knees but christine did not reply we heard nothing but the water rising no one no one in the next room no one to turn the tap no one to turn the scorpion we were all alone in the dark with the dark water that seized us and clasped us and froze us eric eric christine christine by this time we had lost our foothold and were spinning round in the water carried away by an irresistible whirl for the water turned with us and dashed us against the dark mirror which thrust us back again and our throats raised above the whirlpool roared aloud were we to die here drowned in the torture chamber i had never seen that eric at the time of the rosy hours of mazenderan had never shown me that through the little invisible window eric eric i cried i saved your life remember you were sentenced to death but for me you would be dead now eric we whirled around in the water like so much wreckage but suddenly my straying hand seized the trunk of the iron tree i called monsieur de chagny and we both hung to the branch of the iron tree and the water rose still higher oh oh can you remember how much space is there between the branch of the tree and the dome-shaped ceiling do try to remember after all the water may stop it must find its level there i think it is stopping 
no no oh horrible swim swim for your life our arms became entangled in the effort of swimming we choked we fought in the dark water already we could hardly breathe the dark air above the dark water the air which escaped which we could hear escaping through some vent hole or other oh let us turn and turn and turn until we find the air hole and then glue our mouths to it but i lost my strength i tried to lay hold of the walls oh how those glass walls slipped from under my groping fingers we whirled round again we began to sink one last effort a last cry eric christine goggle 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 in our ears goggle goggle at the bottom of the dark water our ears went goggle goggle and before losing consciousness entirely i seemed to hear between two goggles barrels barrels any barrels to sell end of chapter twenty five Chapter Twenty Six of the Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux. Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Six The End of the Ghost's Love Story. The previous chapter marks the conclusion of the written narrative which the Persian left behind him. Notwithstanding the horrors of a situation which seemed definitely to abandon them to their deaths, Monsieur de Chagny and his companion were saved by the sublime devotion of Christine Day, and I had the rest of the story from the lips of the Daroga himself. When I went to see him, he was still living in his little flat in the Rue de Rivoli, opposite the Tuileries. He was very ill, and it required all my ardor as an historian pledged to the truth to persuade him to live the incredible tragedy over again for my benefit. His faithful old servant Darius showed me in to him. The Daroga received me at a window overlooking the garden of the Tuileries. He still had his magnificent eyes, but his poor face looked very worn. He had shaved the whole of his head, which was usually covered with an astrakhan cap, he was dressed in a long, plain coat, and amused himself by unconsciously twisting his thumbs inside the sleeves. But his mind was quite clear, and he told me his story with perfect lucidity. It seems that when he opened his eyes, the Daroga found himself lying on a bed. Monsieur de Chagny was on a sofa beside the wardrobe. An angel and a devil were watching over them. After the deceptions and illusions of the torture-chamber, the precision of the details of that quiet little middle-class room seemed to have been invented for the express purpose of puzzling the mind of the mortal rash enough to stray into that abode of living nightmare. The wooden bedstead, the waxed mahogany chairs, the chest of drawers, those brasses, the little square antimacassars carefully placed on the backs of the chairs, the clock on the mantelpiece, and the harmless-looking ebony caskets at either end, lastly the what-not filled with shells, with red pin-cushions, with mother-of-pearl boats, and an enormous ostrich-egg, the whole discreetly lighted by a shaded lamp standing on a small round table. This collection of ugly, peaceable, reasonable furniture, 
at the bottom of the opera cellars bewildered the imagination more than all the late fantastic happenings and the figure of the masked man seemed all the more formidable in this old-fashioned neat and trim little frame it bent down over the persian and said in his ear are you better daroga you are looking at my furniture it is all that i have left of my poor unhappy mother christine day did not say a word she moved about noiselessly like a sister of charity who had taken a vow of silence she brought a cup of cordial or of hot tea he did not remember which the man in the mask took it from her hands and gave it to the persian monsieur de chagny was still sleeping eric poured a drop of rum into the daroga's cup and pointing to the viscount said he came to himself long before we knew if you were still alive daroga he is quite well he is asleep we must not wake him eric left the room for a moment and the persian raised himself on his elbow looked around him and saw christine day sitting by the fireside he spoke to her called her but he was still very weak and fell back on his pillow christine came to him laid her hand on his forehead and went away again and the persian remembered that as she went she did not give a glance at monsieur de chagny who it is true was sleeping peacefully and she sat down again in her chair by the chimney-corner silent as a sister of charity who had taken a vow of silence eric returned with some little bottles which he placed on the mantelpiece and again in a whisper so as not to wake monsieur de chagny he said to the persian after sitting down and feeling his pulse you are now saved both of you and soon i shall take you up to the surface of the earth to please my wife thereupon he rose without any further explanation and disappeared once more the persian now looked at christine's quiet profile under the lamp she was reading a tiny book with gilt edges like a religious book there are editions of the imitation that look like that the persian still had in his ears the natural tone in which the other had said to please my wife very gently he called her again but Christine was wrapped up in her book and did not hear him. Eric returned, mixed the Duroga a draught, and advised him not to speak to his wife again, nor to anyone, because it might be very dangerous to everybody's health. Eventually the Persian fell asleep, like Monsieur de Chagny, and did not wake until he was in his own room, nursed by his faithful Darius, who told him that on the night before he was found propped against the door of his flat, where he had been brought by a stranger, who rang the bell before going away. As soon as the Daroga recovered his strength and his wits, he sent to Count Felipe's house to inquire after the Viscount's health. The answer was that the young man had not been seen, and that Count Felipe was dead. His body was found on the bank of the Opera Lake, on the Rue Scribe side. The Persian remembered the requiem mass which he had heard from behind the wall of the torture chamber, and had no doubt concerning the crime and the criminal. Knowing Eric as he did, he easily reconstructed the tragedy. Thinking that his brother had run away with Christine Day, Philippe had dashed in pursuit of him along the Brussels road, where he knew that everything was prepared for the elopement. Failing to find the pair, he hurried back to the opera, 
remembered raoul's strange confidence about his fantastic rival and learned that the viscount had made every effort to enter the cellars of the theatre and that he had disappeared leaving his hat in the prima donna's dressing-room beside an empty pistol-case and the count who no longer entertained any doubt of his brother's madness in his turn darted into that infernal underground maze this was enough in the persian's eyes to explain the discovery of the comte de chagny's corpse on the shore of the lake where the siren eric's siren kept watch the persian did not hesitate he determined to inform the police now the case was in the hands of an examining magistrate called for an incredulous commonplace superficial sort of person i write as i think with a mind utterly unprepared to receive a confidence of this kind monsieur four took down the daroga's depositions and proceeded to treat him as a madman despairing of ever obtaining a hearing the persian sat down to write as the police did not want his evidence perhaps the press would be glad of it and he had just written the last line of the narrative i have quoted in the preceding chapters when darius announced the visit of a stranger who refused his name who would not show his face and declared simply that he did not intend to leave the place until he had spoken to the daroga the persian at once felt who his singular visitor was and ordered him to be shown in the daroga was right it was the ghost it was eric he looked extremely weak and leaned against the wall as though he were afraid of falling taking off his hat he revealed a forehead white as wax the rest of the horrible face was hidden by the mask the persian rose to his feet as eric entered murderer of count philippe what have you done with his brother and christine day eric staggered under this direct attack kept silent for a moment dragged himself to a chair and heaved a deep sigh then speaking in short phrases and gasping for breath between the words daroga don't talk to me about count philippe he was dead by the time i left my house he was dead when the siren sang it was an accident a sad a very sad accident he fell very awkwardly but simply and naturally into the lake you lie shouted the persian eric bowed his head and said i have not come here to talk about count philippe but to tell you that i am going to to die where are raoul de chagny and christine day i am going to die raoul de chagny and christine day of love daroga i am dying of love that is how it is loved her so and i love her still daroga and i am dying of love for her i i tell you if you knew how beautiful she was when she let me kiss her alive it was the first time daroga the first time i ever kissed a woman yes alive i kissed her alive and she looked as beautiful as if she had been dead the persian shook eric by the arm will you tell me if she is alive or dead why do you shake me like that asked eric making an effort to speak more connectedly i tell you that i am going to die yes i kissed her alive 
and now she is dead i tell you i kissed her just like that on her forehead and she did not draw back her forehead from my lips oh she is a good girl as to her being dead i don't think so but it has nothing to do with me no no she is not dead and no one shall touch a hair of her head she is a good honest girl and she saved your life daroga at a moment when i would not have given twopence for your persian skin as a matter of fact nobody bothered about you why were you there with that little chap you would have died as well as he my word how she entreated me for her little chap but i told her that as she had turned the scorpion she had through that very fact and of her own free will become engaged to me and that she did not need to have two men engaged to her which was true enough as for you you did not exist you had ceased to exist i tell you and you were going to die with the other only mark me daroga when you were yelling like the devil because of the water christine came to me with her beautiful blue eyes wide open and swore to me as she hoped to be saved that she consented to be my living wife until then in the depths of her eyes daroga i had always seen my dead wife it was the first time i saw my living wife there she was sincere as she hoped to be saved she would not kill herself it was a bargain half a minute later all the water was back in the lake and i had a hard job with you daroga for upon my honor i thought you were done for however there you were it was understood that i was to take you both up to the surface of the earth when at last i cleared the louis philippe room of you i came back alone what have you done with the vicomte de chagny asked the persian interrupting him ah you see daroga i couldn't carry him up like that at once he was a hostage but i could not keep him in the house on the lake either because of christine so i locked him up comfortably i chained him up nicely a whiff of the mazenderan scent had left him as limp as a rag in the communist dungeon which is in the most deserted and remote part of the opera below the fifth cellar where no one ever comes and where no one ever hears you then i came back to christine she was waiting for me eric here rose solemnly then he continued but as he spoke he was overcome by all his former emotion and began to tremble like a leaf yes she was waiting for me waiting for me erect and alive a real living bride and she hoped to be saved and when i came forward more timid than a little child she did not run away no no she stayed she waited for me i even believe daroga that she put out her forehead a little oh not much just a little like a living bride and and i kissed her i i i and she did not die oh how good it is daroga to kiss somebody on the forehead you can't tell but i i my mother daroga 
my poor unhappy mother would never let me kiss her she used to run away and throw me my mask nor any other woman ever ever ah you can understand my happiness was so great i cried and i fell at her feet crying and i kissed her feet her little feet crying you're crying too daroga and she cried also the angel cried eric sobbed aloud and the persian himself could not retain his tears in the presence of that masked man who with his shoulders shaking and his hands clutched at his chest was moaning with pain and love by turns yes daroga i felt her tears flow on my forehead on mine mine they were soft they were sweet they trickled under my mask, they mingled with my tears in my eyes. Yes, they flowed between my lips. Listen, Daroga, listen to what I did. I tore off my mask so as not to lose one of her tears, and she did not run away, and she did not die. She remained alive, weeping over me with me. We cried together i have tasted all the happiness the world can offer and eric fell into a chair choking for breath ah i am not going to die yet presently i shall but let me cry listen daroga listen to this while i was at her feet i heard her say poor unhappy eric and she took my hand i had become no more you know than a poor dog ready to die for her i mean it daroga i held in my hand a ring a plain gold ring which i had given her which she had lost and which i had found again a wedding ring you know i slipped it into her little hand and said there take it take it for you and him it shall be my wedding present a present from your poor unhappy eric i know you love the boy don't cry any more she asked me in a very soft voice what i meant then i made her understand that where she was concerned i was only a poor dog ready to die for her but that she could marry the young man when she pleased because she had cried with me and mingled her tears with mine eric's emotion was so great that he had to tell the persian not to look at him for he was choking and must take off his mask the daroga went to the window and opened it his heart was full of pity but he took care to keep his eyes fixed on the trees in the tulare's gardens lest he should see the monster's face i went and released the young man eric continued and told him to come with me to christine they kissed before me in the louis philippe room christine had my ring i made christine swear to come back one night when i was dead crossing the lake from the rue scribe side and bury me in the greatest secrecy with the gold ring which she was to wear until that moment i told her where she would find my body and what to do with it then christine kissed me for the first time herself here on the forehead don't look daroga here on the forehead on my forehead mine 
don't look, Daroga. And they went off together. Christine had stopped crying. I alone cried. Daroga, Daroga, if Christine keeps her promise, she will come back soon. The Persian asked him no questions. He was quite reassured as to the fate of Raoul Chagny and Christine Day. No one could have doubted the word of the weeping Eric at that moment. The monster resumed his mask and collected his strength to leave the Daroga. He told him that when he felt his end to be very near at hand, he would send him, in gratitude for the kindness which the Persian had once shown him, that which he held dearest in the world, all Christine Day's papers, which she had written for Raoul's benefit, and left with Eric, together with a few objects belonging to her, such as a pair of gloves, a shoe-buckle, and two pocket-handkerchiefs. In reply to the Persian's questions, Eric told him that the two young people, as soon as they found themselves free, had resolved to go and look for a priest in some lonely spot where they could hide their happiness, and that, with this object in view, they had started from the northern railway station of the world. Lastly, Eric relied on the Persian, as soon as he received the promised relics and papers, to inform the young couple of his death and to advertise it in the epoch. That was all. The Persian saw Eric to the door of his flat, and Darius helped him down to the street. A cab was waiting for him. Eric stepped in, and the Persian, who had gone back to the window, heard him say to the driver, Go to the opera, and the cab drove off into the night. The Persian had seen the poor, unfortunate Eric for the last time. Three weeks later, the epoch published this advertisement. Eric is dead. End of chapter 26I have now told the singular but veracious story of the opera ghost. As I declared on the first page of this work, it is no longer possible to deny that Eric really lived. There are today so many proofs of his existence within the reach of everybody that we can follow Eric's actions logically through the whole tragedy of the Chagny's. There is no need to repeat here how greatly the case excited the capital the kidnapping of the artist, the death of the Comte de Chagny under such exceptional conditions, the disappearance of his brother, the drugging of the gas-man at the opera, and of his two assistants. What tragedies, what passions, what crimes had surrounded the idol of Raoul and the sweet and charming Christine? What had become of that wonderful, mysterious artist of whom the world was never, never to hear again? She was represented as the victim of a rivalry between the two brothers, and nobody suspected what had really happened. Nobody understood that as Raoul and Christine had both disappeared, both had withdrawn far from the world to enjoy a happiness which they would not have cared to make public after the inexplicable death of Count Philippe. They took the train one day from the northern railway station of the world, Possibly I, too, shall take the train at that station one day, and go and seek around thy lakes, O Norway, O silent Scandinavia, for the perhaps still living traces of Raoul and Christine, 
and also of Mama Valerius, who disappeared at the same time. Possibly some day I shall hear the lonely echoes of the North repeat the singing of her who knew the angel of music. Long after the case was pigeonholed by the unintelligent care of Monsieur Le Juge d'Instruction IV, the newspapers made efforts at intervals to fathom the mystery. One evening paper alone, which knew all the gossip of the theatre, said, We recognize the touch of the opera ghost, and even that was written by way of irony. The Persian alone knew the whole truth and held the main proofs, which came to him with the pious relics promised by the ghost. It fell to my lot to complete those proofs with the aid of the Daroga himself. Day by day I kept him informed of the progress of my inquiries, and he directed them. He had not been to the opera for years and years, but he had preserved the most accurate recollection of the building, and there was no better guide than he possible to help me discover its most secret recesses. He also told me where to gather further information, whom to ask, and he sent me to call on Monsieur Poligny at a moment when the poor man was nearly drawing his last breath. I had no idea that he was so very ill, and I shall never forget the effect which my questions about the ghost produced upon him. He looked at me as if I were the devil, and answered only in a few incoherent sentences which showed, however, and that was the main thing the extent of the perturbation which O.G. in his time had brought into that already very restless life, for Monsieur Poligny was what people call a man of pleasure. When I came and told the Persian of the poor result of my visit to Monsieur Poligny, the Daroga gave a faint smile and said, Poligny never knew how far that extraordinary black guard of an Eric humbugged him. The Persian, by the way, spoke of Eric sometimes as a demigod, and sometimes as the lowest of the low. Poligny was superstitious, and Eric knew it. Eric knew most things about the public and private affairs of the opera. When Monsieur Poligny heard a mysterious voice tell him, in Box Five, of the manner in which he used to spend his time and abuse his partner's confidence, he did not wait to hear any more. Thinking at first that it was a voice from heaven, he believed himself damned, and then, when the voice began to ask for money, he saw that he was being victimized by a shrewd blackmailer to whom Debian himself had fallen a prey. Both of them, already tired of management for various reasons, went away without trying to investigate further into the personality of that curious O.G. who had forced such a singular memorandum book upon them. They bequeathed the whole mystery to their successors, and heaved a sigh of relief when they were rid of a business that had puzzled them without amusing them in the least. Then I spoke of the two successors and expressed my surprise that in his memoirs of a manager Monsieur Moncharmin should describe the opera ghost's behavior at such length in the first part of the book and hardly mention it at all in the second. In reply to this, the Persian, who knew the memoirs as thoroughly as if he had written them himself, observed that I should find the explanation of the whole business if I would just recollect the few lines which Moncharmin devotes to the ghost in the second part aforesaid. I quote these lines, which are particularly interesting because they describe the very simple manner in which the famous incident of the twenty thousand francs was closed. 
As for O.G., some of whose curious tricks I have related in the first part of my memoirs, I will only say that he redeemed, by one spontaneous fine action, all the worry which he had caused my dear friend and partner, and I am bound to say myself. He felt, no doubt, that there are limits to a joke, especially when it is so expensive, and when the commissary of police has been informed, for at the moment when we had made an appointment in our office with Monsieur Mifroy to tell him the whole story, a few days after the disappearance of Christine Day, we found on Richard's table a large envelope inscribed in red ink, with O.G.'s compliments. It contained the large sum of money which he had succeeded in playfully extracting, for the time being, from the treasury. Richard was at once of the opinion that we must be content with that and drop the business. I agreed with Richard. All's well that ends well. What do you say, O.G.? Of course, Moncharmin, especially after the money had been restored, continued to believe that he had, for a short while, been the butt of Richard's sense of humor, whereas Richard, on his side, was convinced that Moncharmin had amused himself by inventing the whole affair of the opera ghost in order to revenge himself for a few jokes. I asked the Persian to tell me by what trick the ghost had taken twenty thousand francs from Richard's pocket in spite of the safety-pin. He replied that he had not gone into this little detail, but that if I myself cared to make an investigation on the spot, I should certainly find the solution to the riddle in the manager's office by remembering that Eric had not been nicknamed the trap-door lover for nothing. I promised the Persian to do so as soon as I had time, and I may as well tell the reader at once that the results of my investigation were perfectly satisfactory and I hardly believed that I should ever discover so many undeniable proofs of the authenticity of the feats ascribed to the ghost. The Persian's manuscript, Christine Day's papers, the statements made to me by the people who used to work under Messrs. Richard and Moncharmin, by little Meg herself, the worthy Madame Jury, I'm sorry to say, is no more, and by Sorelli, who is now living in retirement at Louvciennes, all the documents relating to the existence of the ghost which I proposed to deposit in the archives of the opera have been checked and confirmed by a number of important discoveries of which I am justly proud. I have not been able to find the house on the lake, Eric having blocked up all the secret entrances. On the other hand, I have discovered the secret passage of the communists, the planking of which is falling to pieces in parts, and also the trap-door through which Raoul and the Persian penetrated into the cellars of the opera-house. In the communist dungeon I noticed numbers of initials traced on the walls by the unfortunate people confined in it, and among these were an R and a C. R. C. Raoul de Chagny. The letters are there to this day. If the reader will visit the opera one morning and ask leave to stroll where he pleases, without being accompanied by a stupid guide, let him go to box five and knock with his fist or stick on the enormous column that separates this from the stage-box. He will find that the column sounds hollow. After that, do not be astonished by the suggestion that it was occupied by the voice of the ghost. There is room inside the column for two men. If you are surprised that when the various incidents occurred no one turned round to look at the column, you must remember that it presented the appearance of solid marble, 
and that the voice contained in it seemed rather to come from the opposite side, for, as we have seen, the ghost was an expert ventriloquist. The column was elaborately carved and decorated with the sculptor's chisel, and I do not despair of one day discovering the ornament that could be raised or lowered at will, so as to admit of the ghost's mysterious correspondence with Madame Jury and of his generosity. However, all these discoveries are nothing, to my mind, compared with that which I was able to make in the presence of the acting manager in the manager's office, within a couple of inches from the desk chair, and which consisted of a trap-door, the width of a board in the flooring and the length of a man's forearm, and no longer, a trap-door that falls back like the lid of a box, a trap-door through which I can see a hand come and dexterously fumble at the pocket of a swallow-tail coat. That is the way the forty thousand francs went, and that also is the way by which, through some trick or other, they were returned. Speaking about this to the Persian, I said, so we may take it, as the forty thousand francs were returned, that Eric was simply amusing himself with that memorandum book of his. Don't you believe it, he replied. Eric wanted money. Thinking himself without the pale of humanity, he was restrained by no scruples, and he employed his extraordinary gifts of dexterity and imagination, which he had received by way of compensation for his extraordinary ugliness, to prey upon his fellow-men. His reason for restoring the forty thousand francs of his own accord was that he no longer wanted it. He had relinquished his marriage with Christine Day. He had relinquished everything above the surface of the earth. According to the Persian's account, Eric was born in a small town not far from Rouen. He was the son of a master mason. He ran away at an early age from his father's house, where his ugliness was a subject of horror and terror to his parents. For a time he frequented the fairs, where a showman exhibited him as the living corpse. He seems to have crossed the whole of Europe from fair to fair, and to have completed his strange education as an artist and magician at the very fountainhead of art and magic among the gypsies. A period of Eric's life remained quite obscure. He was seen at the fair of Nijni Novgorod, where he displayed himself in all his hideous glory. He already sang as nobody on this earth had ever sung before. He practiced ventriloquism, and gave displays of ledger domain, so extraordinary that the caravans returning to Asia talked about it during the whole length of their journey. In this way his reputation penetrated the walls of the palace at Mazenderan, where the little sultana, the favorite of the shah in shah, was boring herself to death. A dealer in furs, returning to Smarken from Nijinya Novgorod, told of the marvels which he had seen performed in Eric's tent. The trader was summoned to the palace, and the daroga of Mazenderan was told to question him. Next the daroga was instructed to go and find Eric. He brought him to Persia, where for some months Eric's will was law. He was guilty of not a few horrors, for he seemed not to know the difference between good and evil. He took part calmly in a number of political assassinations, and he turned his diabolical inventive powers against the emir of Afghanistan, who was at war with the Persian Empire. The Shah took a liking to him. 
This was the time of the rosy hours of Mazenderan, of which the Daroga's narrative has given us a glimpse. Eric had very original ideas on the subject of architecture, and thought out a palace much as a conjurer contrives a trick casket. The Shah ordered him to construct an edifice of this kind. Eric did so, and the building appears to have been so ingenious that His Majesty was able to move about in it unseen and to disappear without a possibility of the tricks being discovered. When the Shah in Shah found himself the possessor of this gem, he ordered Eric's yellow eyes to be put out, but he reflected that even when blind Eric would still be able to build so remarkable a house for another sovereign, and also that as long as Eric was alive someone would know the secret of the wonderful palace. Eric's death was decided upon, together with that of all the laborers who had worked under his orders. The execution of this abominable decree devolved upon the Daroga of Mazenderan. Eric had shown him some slight services and procured him many a hearty laugh. He saved Eric by providing him with the means of escape, but nearly paid with his head for this generous indulgence. Fortunately for the Daroga, a corpse half-eaten by the birds of prey was found on the shore of the Caspian Sea, and was taken for Eric's body, because the Daroga's friends had dressed the remains in clothing that belonged to Eric. The Daroga was let off with the loss of the imperial favor, the confiscation of his property, and an order of perpetual banishment. As a member of the royal house, however, he continued to receive a monthly pension of a few hundred francs from the Persian treasury, and on this he came to live in Paris. As for Eric, he went to Asia Minor, and thence to Constantinople, where he entered the Sultan's employment. In explanation of the services which he was able to render a monarch haunted by perpetual terrors, I need only say that it was Eric who constructed all the famous trap-doors and secret chambers and mysterious strong-boxes which were found at Yildiz Kiosk after the last Turkish Revolution. He also invented those automata, dressed like the Sultan, and resembling the sultan in all respects, which made people believe that the commander of the faithful was awake at one place, when in reality he was asleep elsewhere. Of course he had to leave the sultan's service for the same reasons that made him fly from Persia. He knew too much. Then, tired of his adventurous, formidable, and monstrous life, he longed to be someone like everybody else, and he became a contractor, like an ordinary contractor, building ordinary houses with ordinary bricks. He tendered for part of the foundations in the opera. His estimate was accepted. When he found himself in the cellars of the enormous playhouse, his artistic, fantastic, wizard nature resumed the upper hand. Besides, was he not as ugly as ever? He dreamed of creating for his own use a dwelling unknown to the rest of the earth where he could hide from men's eyes for all time. The reader knows and guesses the rest. It is all in keeping with this incredible and yet veracious story. Poor, unhappy Eric! Shall we pity him? Shall we curse him? He asked only to be someone, like everybody else. But he was too ugly, and he had to hide his genius or use it to play tricks with when, with an ordinary face, he would have been one of the most distinguished of mankind. 
he had a heart that could have held the empire of the world, and in the end he had to content himself with a cellar. Ah, yes, we must needs pity the opera ghost. I have prayed over his mortal remains that God might show him mercy, notwithstanding his crimes. Yes, I am sure, quite sure, that I prayed beside his body the other day when they took it from the spot where they were burying the phonographic records. It was his skeleton. I did not recognize it by the ugliness of the head, for all men are ugly when they have been dead as long as that, but by the plain gold ring which he wore and which Christine Day had certainly slipped on his finger when she came to bury him in accordance with her promise. The skeleton was lying near the little well, in the place where the angel of music first held Christine Day fainting in his trembling arms on the night when he carried her down to the cellars of the opera house. And now what do they mean to do with that skeleton? Surely they will not bury it in the common grave. I say that the place of the skeleton of the opera ghost is in the archives of the National Academy of Music. It is no ordinary skeleton. End of Epilogue End of The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos Recording by Ralph J. Snelson Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.